1: Big Tech's ordinance has everything from complete firearms to OEM and aftermarket parts. If you're looking to put together your first AR-15, they have everything from those parts that you need to the tools that are going to be essential. If you're looking for suppressors, night vision, handheld lights, weapon lights, sights or optics, you name it, Big Tech's has it all. Not only that, they're offering all those brands that we like. Go visit them at bigtechsordinance.com. Filster makes awesome holsters. But not only that, they also happen to be one of those companies that are trendsetters. A lot of their designs are emulated by other companies. Not only does Filstered make those holsters, but they also provide concealment systems like the Enigma, the Flex. They also have a lot of solutions when it comes to concealment solutions for medical. If you need to have a concealment first aid kit, they happen to sell them. Check them out at filsterholster.com. Join Primary Arms Government on September 10th for their third annual First Responder Range Day. Hosted in Pasadena, Texas, this event connects law enforcement professionals with leading industry brands, all while enjoying local food and event activities. In addition to live fire demos, this year's event will feature axe throwing, archery challenges, t-shirt printing, product raffles, and more. If you're an active law enforcement professional or other first responder, RSVP today by visiting primaryarms.com government. Walther is the performance leader in the firearms industry, renowned throughout the world for its innovation since Carl Walther and his son Fritz created the first blowback semi-automatic pistol in 1908. Today, the innovative spirit builds off the invention of the concealed carry gun with a PPK series by creating the PPQ, PPS, and the Q5 match steel frame series. Military, police, and other government security groups in every country of the world have relied on the high-quality craftsmanship and rugged durability of Walther products. Walther continues its long tradition of technical expertise and innovation in the design and production of firearms. For more information, visit waltherarms.com.
2: Hey everyone, Matt Lanfer here with
1: Primary and Secondary. Welcome to ModCast. Today is August 3rd, 2022. The episode number is 307. The topic, myths and legends of outdoor survival. It's going to be a good discussion. One of my favorite types of discussions where I get to sit back and learn. I probably won't have much to add because I'm not that well-versed in this stuff. So I have an awesome panel to discuss this. In fact, the panel is so good, not to put you guys on too high of a pedestal, but talking to a couple of the moderators saying, Hey, I know you're into outdoor stuff. What do you think about jumping on? They saw the panel and they said, Oh no, you have this well covered. So awesome. They're, they're definitely, definitely going to listen once this is all over. But uh, as you listen to this, I'm going to, I'm going to say one of my favorite things right now, as you listen to this, consider who's talking. If you're watching on YouTube, clearly you're going to know who it is. Um, if you're listening, look at what the notes are, who the panelists are. And make sure you're supporting those sources to, that you have found to be beneficial. What I mean by that is, if you like what these guys have to say, pay attention to who they are, what they represent, what companies they're with, and give them a like, give them a subscribe, uh, share their content when it's meaningful, when it helps you. Because you know we have all this really cool uh, content out there. they they're really good podcasts. There's good YouTube stuff, but unfortunately. There's also this algorithm, and the algorithm doesn't necessarily work in the good guy's favor. The really good sources of information aren't necessarily the most popular. So this is where you come in, and this is where you can come in and help and share. So I think we'll do background. So my, my background's in law enforcement. I live in the mountains, but I'm not really outdoorsy. So I'm going to just listen. It's going to be great. Uh, so I don't really have a background for this. So for the most part... I'm going to just defer to these guys for everything. On occasion, I might have a question. We'll see. So, Craig, give us some background.
3: Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here with this panel, that's for sure. Uh, my name is Craig Cottle. I'm the director of Nature Alliance School, headquartered in Central Kentucky. And for those who have been watching the news, we've been heavily involved in the last few, few days and week on all this devastation that's happened here in Kentucky. So, we, we should probably need to bring that up at some point tonight. I'm, tonight to talk about some of the things that we've been part of and some of the things that we've seen and been witness to so but uh nature reliance school is a school that we founded in 2006 i've been teaching since that time publicly and we teach wilderness survival navigation tracking um if i could teach anything every day all day it would be tracking that's that's my job that's my that's my game i love doing that and uh, i'm the author of five books currently writing my sixth and my seventh at the same time, which I don't recommend anybody ever do that. Um, but that's in the short, that's me. That's, that's who we are. That's what we do. And, uh, we really enjoy being outside basically. Good stuff. Shane. Shane
4: Adams. I am, uh, I guess my official title is marketing director, uh, for SE knives and random adventuring training, I added kind of a slash utility player for that as I do everything from tote water to uh whatever needs to be done, whatever Jeff and Mike don't really want to do. Um I have a, I, you know, I grew up in the mountains of North Georgia. Uh I've been a mountain biker and a cyclist my entire life. Uh furthermore, I've paddled whitewater boats. Uh a lot of backpacking, hunting, spending a lot of time outside. And uh, uh, like Craig, uh, I feel honored and fortunate to be here. Um, and our industry is, um, I think, driven by hype in a lot of, re- in a lot of ways. And, and uh, to have these guys on here, I know there's uh, uh, two guys uh, in here that have a lot of dirt time and dirt time is our petri dish and it's our proving ground and i know evan and
2: craig both have a lot of dirt time so i'm happy to be here cool and evan
5: thanks Matt. uh so i'm really just the guy smart enough to bring these other two guys on um both of them teach this off and on for a living uh i have taught some but mostly i design gear um i i guess yeah i grew up in the outdoors um dad was a hunting guide in alaska and uh, you know i've been outdoors my whole life Um, what I do now for a living is, is I design outdoor gear. I do spend a fair amount of time solo backpacking here in the, the Intermountain West, so the Rocky Mountains and out into the desert. Uh, so, you know, when, when Shane talks about dirt time, that's my dirt time. Uh, and I've been on the ground with both these guys, and I, I know they're solid guys, which is why I brought them in, but again, they both teach this stuff for a living, you know, like for instance, I just sent uh, sent Craig some new fire starter that we're thinking about selling, because our old source kind of uh, fizzled out, and uh, I knew that Craig would run it through its paces in the real world with students week in and week out, way more, way more than I was going to, so you know, that's, that's kind of the way I think of Craig and, and uh, you know, in Shane's case, like I said, he teaches survival. I don't know how often you guys do your Randall's adventure training classes, Shane, but it seems like all the time you're either on a SAR mission or doing that. So uh, anyway, that, that, that's who you're talking to here. Okay. Before we officially, officially start the
1: direction we were going, I do have a question for all of you guys. How does someone determine whether they should be taking a course like that, like a wilderness survival course?
3: Oh, so, so my my answer to that question is everybody needs to do it. And that includes me. Uh, I think the uh, outdoor skills and outdoor um, mindset, what I call mindset, skills, tactics, and gear, all four of those never stop. The learning never stops. And so, I'm not saying that because I run an organization that teaches that for a living. You can do it on your own. You can do it without me. Uh, just put, as Evan mentioned earlier, maybe you, dirt time's the key. Just as long as you get out and do something, uh, you'll get better at the skill. Now, of course, specifically, yeah, somebody like Randall's or Nature Lot School and other schools like our schools will help people get way down the path that took me years to learn simple concepts and a lot, of, a lot of unfortunate nights on the river, unfortunate nights out in the woods without any type of the proper gear. Uh, that's how I learned a lot of those lessons. And so I can share that in a class. That's kind of what I feel that we do in a class. Um, but again, part of the reason that I'm here is because I spent so much time in the woods on the water doing things. And so I'm a big fan of recommending people do exactly that because that is a great, great teacher. It just, it's long (laughs) to get to some of these lessons. And sometimes the lessons come in such a way that it's problematic, whether it's close to injury or death even. And so I think somebody like Randall's uh, Nature Blonde School, and again, other schools like ours can help people avoid those calamities as well as just you know, pick you up, put you down the trail 10 miles where we started back at the beginning,
2: if that makes sense. Absolutely. Evan?
5: The space bar trick's only working about half the time for whatever reason. At any rate, so this is a little bit of a I don't want to go super deep, but I've often opined. And the more I spend time in the backcountry, the more I notice that the consummate woodsman is the guy who's always paying attention to details. And, you know, whatever holds true, both these guys are from, you know, Appalachia, roughly speaking. Um, I'm from the Rocky mountains. I go out to their environment. Everything's different. Like not everything, everything's different, but I got to pay a lot of attention. The animals move differently. It's different kinds of animals. Uh, so You know, kind of building on what Craig said, the consummate woodsman is always paying attention. I go into two different drainages up here in my favorite wilderness area, and they have different characteristics. There's different animals moving through them. They're moving differently. There's different um, uh, weather patterns. There's different thermals doing different things. Uh, So, always learning, always learning. of course, if you can start with a school, that's great. But, uh, you know, I guarantee I bring either of these two guys out and I have spent some time in my home wilderness area with Shane and he asked a lot of questions and paid attention and noticed things. And, you know, that's that's what it takes to be a a true woodsman. That's awesome.
1: I, I never would have thought also with just the two different atmospheres or two different places, it would be noticeably different like that. But I guess it makes sense. Shane, what do you have for us?
4: I think the time to realize that you need training it is, shouldn't be when you need the skill that you don't have. Uh, I, it was yesterday. I, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I've taken quite a bit of quite a few firearms classes. And, and the, the thing that led into that was I used to own my own business and I got into a situation, um, where a good guy thinking, uh, kind of paralyzed me or, or, it gave me a uh, misrepresented reality. And we always kind of think it's mano a mano or whatever else. And I got into a situation where it's three on one and I've got 12 rounds and three moving targets. And I'm not sure if this is, if I've got the skill that I need to pull this off. And so I got what I call a freebie on that where I didn't have to shoot anybody. I didn't get shot. Things worked out. I did a lot of things wrong uh, tactically, um, but I let them know it's going to be a hard day, you know? Uh, and so all too often, um, we get these mulligans that we don't always take advantage of. And and so for me, I I think the more we can be well-rounded, the more we can expose ourselves to different environments, to different people, to different ways of learning. Um, Also, uh, when you, like Craig says, we can learn on our own. We can go to YouTube, but it's hard to vet uh, some of the information that's taught or, or put out there. And there's some glaringly bad information out there uh, there's also some really, really good information out there, but it's hard to put weight on one versus the other. Um, you will make a lot of mistakes. I, I, I'm kind of of the of the philosophy of the lazy man's guide to survival is I'm going to borrow and beg off of other people's knowledge, and I'm going to take the path straight through. If I can go to Craig's class for a weekend, and he can move me farther down the line than I would have been if I'd have made mistakes. And bear in mind, if you go to Evan's location, uh, a mistake with clothing where you misjudge weather or you misjudge preparation, uh, even in the dead of summer, can prove to be fatal. And so, you know, we don't always get those mulligans. Sometimes we don't even get one. And, and so that level of preparedness and, and, and looking to borrow off other people's knowledge, to me, um, is important. Amen. Uh, it's, it's interesting how many parallels There are with the
1: conversations that I've had so many times on this podcast, talking about training as far as firearms are concerned, but also about that good information and how difficult it is to figure out, okay, who's providing the good stuff. And at the same time, as I said before, popular doesn't necessarily mean it's good. So I think that really provided a really good foundation to where we're going with this discussion. So let's talk about that law of threes. And I'll shot, shotgun that out to whoever wants. It looks like Craig's already on it.
3: Uh, I can be. Uh, we 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 like to share the law of threes as a foundational principle. And I, and I want to qualify what I'm about to say to make sure everybody understands us listening, if you've never heard this, that it's a very general understanding. These are not absolutes. Um, on top of the law of threes, and I'm getting ready to describe, you've got to have a You've got to have the ability to think, critically think through problems. And quite frankly, in a survival situation, you've got to be able to do that quickly. So the, even the thought process and how that works is something that's really worth studying in a survival situation, how your mind thinks, how it works. But I'll give one general understanding, or at least my understanding of all threes. Um, I, I think this originated with the United States military. I'm not absolutely certain these other guys might be able to confirm that or deny that for me. I'm not really sure where it got started. But uh, I did find a very, very old survival manual that had it in it. And the way they taught it in that particular manual was this. You can't live more than three minutes without blood flow and oxygen flow. You can't live more than three hours without maintaining your core body temperature. You can't live more than three days without water. can't live more than three, mo- or three weeks without food. And then when I'm teaching, I typically add in, at the beginning of it, three seconds. Me and Evan were talking about this the other day, and I also add in three months. And so, what I would add into that, on top of what the United States military originated, was you got to have proper mindset in those first three seconds, so you don't get yourself number one, you don't get yourself in trouble when you make cognitive decision making that's and critical decision making that's solid under stress. Learning how to think under stress is a very interesting thing, which you. You uh, you gun guys know very, very well. I take a lot of the things that I've been taught in, <laughs> that I've been taught in shooting classes and have applied it to wilderness survival. The other thing that I add on to the end of it, you can't live more three months without human assistance. And the reason I say that is because every, nearly every culture on the planet through history has depended upon other people to make it work. The idea, and, and I use this as a launching pad to kind of negate the idea of the lone wolf survival type of attitude, because there's just a lot of that that's prevalent inside of survival that I'm just not a fan of at all. Uh, And I say that from, from the experiences, a couple of experiences I had is I did two 30 day trips by myself when I was in my early twenties in the woods by myself. And all I took in the woods with me was the clothes on my back and a knife. And those two experiences didn't, I did not leave those experiences 10 foot tall and bulletproof. I left those experiences realizing I did no squat like I thought I did. I nearly starved to death the second time I went. I didn't eat for the first three weeks. I thought I had a skill set that I didn't have. And it humbled me. and, And I love humility. It's a great teacher. And so part of what came out of that and part of what's been foundational to my thinking, at least, and what I try to share with people is this idea of tribing up and utilizing other people to effectively make your survival. When I wrote, I'm sorry, I'm going long, guys. Um, I think that's the intention. But when I wrote, when I wrote my first book, uh, one of the things that I saw—well, when I first started writing, I thought, "Do I really need to write another survival book?" And I was asked to do that by a publisher, and so there was money involved, and so I was happy to do it. But one of the things I'm looking at going, because I, I I've read a lot of survival books, I've read a lot of survival books, and there's just what I thought was missing was data. I'm a statistics nerd. I have a degree in statistics. So I really like numbers. And so what I did is I collected 200 stories plus of how people either died or experienced tragedy in the outdoors. And then I wrote a book to fix every single one of their problems. And one of the things that came out over and over and over again was this lack of communication or lack of leadership skill that led to some situation where somebody perished. And so, you know, we work on that. I write about it all the time. I talk about it on podcasts all the time. This idea of being able to communicate effectively with others and work with inside of a team. Uh, we all know, because most of us do some sort of tactical shooting, that one of the first things to go is columns. You know, when you're shooting, move, and communicate, one of the first things to go away is columns. That's very true in a survival situation as well, is being able to effectively communicate and lead others in a survival situation so it doesn't devolve at all. I'll stop there cause I'm going too far. <laughs>
5: 18 plus so i can talk briefly here uh so both the uh 3 seconds and the 3 months are ones that i've heard and completely agree with um and so i'm glad that you brought that up craig um and, and also this lone wolf thing it's so my major is anthropology and so there's this notion of the um the mountain man who did everything on his own through the middle of the winter. And if you read any of those historical accounts, I don't know, I see smiles and nods. Those dudes were rolling in groups of like 70 with like pack trains of hundreds of animals and they established huge fort-like camps. And so, you know, these, these stories we have of, you know, the solitary survivor, and there are a few of them out there, that was not a regular thing. That was somebody who was already into his exception period. That was somebody who had already messed up. And so it, it, that's, we, in in this culture, we do have this myth, this this idea that, oh yeah, I'm, I'm gonna just go out as Craig has done, and uh, I'm gonna be able to survive by myself. We even have TV shows about it. And um, it, it's just not super realistic, particularly without a lot of gear. I mean, if you look at um, primitive cultures, most cultures that live in the latitudes that we do have extensive toolkits. And um, I think without exception, used load-bearing animals. Before horses, it was dogs. There was no carrying everything you needed on your back. Once you get down to the lower latitudes, you live in a jungle environment, something where homeostasis is easier to maintain. The, the toolkits are smaller and that's more of a reality. But where we live, that was never reality. It never happened. It was canoes or dogs or you know uh caribou or something like that so um i just want to amplify your point there craig on on the realities of solo survival and um and particularly you know without groups and in the latitudes we live in
1: i think the donner party is a good example of that too because they
2: as a group ate each other shane there we go um yeah. I can't really add too much to these guys uh, without turning the corner of where I'm, I'm
4: sure we're headed to next. Um, uh, we have, and I know Craig will back this up and Evan too, is we have seen, we, we all study um, survival. Uh, I, I do a lot with search and rescue too. And we have this whole Bible of sorts called lost person behavior. That's a statistical analysis of lost person behavior uh, over the last almost 40 years um, what invariably, in what you wind up seeing is while we can, we can group certain peoples in certain things um, you can't ever qualify how people are going to work under stress and how they're going to respond. We have seen cases where people are fully prepared equipment wise to do what needs to be done to, to remedy their situation, to get to safety, to get out, whatever, whatever it is. Um, and yet they still falter and fail. And then we've seen other people with literally no tools, no nothing, no skills that end up making it out, beating the odds. And, and, and that solely comes through. And this is one of the things that, that it's hard to, it's hard to hype up. And like Evan can't put, um, stress inoculation in a backpack he can't put mindset in a backpack and if we ever could we would all be millionaires uh, and not thousandaires um but it's the mindset that separates success from failure and we often talk about and like shooting you take a guy who's a crack shot can do anything you put him on a shot timer and and if he's not used to it, man, you start seeing things get real hinky real fast. So we so we we understand the idea of stress inoculation, but something that no one talks about is attitude inoculation. How do you inoculate your attitude in such a way that no matter what curveball nature or Murphy throws you, you and it's not a false attitude. It's not I can I can be anything or doing things like it doesn't matter what happens i'm going to walk i'm going to crawl i'm going to do whatever it takes but i'm getting out of here i'm doing i'm going to do uh and without testing yourself in that and putting yourself uh learning to be comfortable in uncomfortable situations which nobody ever does they just want to take cool pictures in the backyard for the gram um then that becomes problematic and it goes back to dirt time to me is you know craig's done the work You know, and that work that he's done in in those uh, endeavors and those two two uh, month long trips, um, humility is is the ultimate survival tool because it keeps you honest, it keeps you uh, pure, and it keeps you focused. And there is literally, um, I'll just say this: no BS involved, and it it strips away anything that's false. And so, that's all I got to say about that unless we want to talk more.
1: I, I see a parallel with that with some of my higher end training where the, a person's true, not their core, but their true self is is shown that we have for, even as a cop after the past 20 plus years, seeing people, their true selves. Okay. Some people are going to crumble. Some people, they, they, they almost rise to the occasion. Interesting with these parallels because there's a lot of what you guys are saying. And This is stuff we've been talking about the human condition. Amazing change. Yeah. But
4: we gotta want to see that. Sometimes when we look through our lens of social media, we see the best part of, we we put our social media, our of life highlight reel out there, but there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of us, I say us, there's a lot of us that don't want to go into the dark corners and admit your weaknesses, your faults, your deficits. Um, it sucks to be, you know, to go put yourself in a position in jujitsu or, or in physical condition to where you got to have a real, a real honest talk with yourself. Like I've had to have, I've put on about a COVID uh, 15, it's down to about a COVID 12 now, but you got to like, man, I'm not as operationally fit as I need to be, you know, but I've got a lifetime of doing that and, and being in the pain cave and understanding that. And so I think there's some of us that just kind of relish that time in the pain cave and you learn to get comfortable there, but it's clarifying. It's it's proofing, and uh, it burns off all the BS, and what you're left
2: with is what you really are. So I, I think that's something people have to have, 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 to have a desire to get, go in deep on that. Yeah, I think um, if, if I could add something a little bit to that,
3: my wife and I were discussing this subject. Well, my wife and my daughter and I were talking about this subject. We were have a family friend that's dealing with some PTS issues. And we were discussing, uh, one of the things that came up in that discussion is this particular person mentioned how they missed war. And the, the conversation ended up, I'm, I've never been in the military, so I don't have personal experience with it, but I've been around so many of them like all these guys have. Um, one of the things that comes out of it, I think, is that people that have been close to death there's something about that that is good to help you live. And so we've said, each one of us, I think, have said at some point tonight that being comfortable in uncomfortable situations, that's just taking it another step. And I guess that's what it, to build on what Shane was saying about this this second trip that I took that was 30 days and I nearly starved to death, man, I was close. I was real close to not making it out. I mean, real close. And uh, I've had two or three other experiences uh, in the wilderness specifically where that has happened to due to stupidity or me trying to push the envelope and stuff of that nature. And uh, there's just something about it that is good, though. Uh, Now I'm, I'm responsible for taking other people and getting them close to that. And so, you know, doing a knife only survival class will do on occasion simply because people that have never engaged in that sort of activity are just very, very uncomfortable, more so than anything that they've done most of the time. And that might include just in, in today's world, people just not having their on cell phones. I mean, it's it's crazy uh, to see people that start looking for that cell phone four hours into a wilderness survival class or somebody will bring it up. And there's this phenomenon. I don't know, Shane or Evan might know that there's a name for this, and I really don't know what it is. But one of the things I noticed several years ago after teaching for a few years was that people would go to something they're familiar with when they started becoming uncomfortable. For example, if, if we were teaching a course and Our level one courses are basically what I call camping trips, studying survival. They're really not hardcore. They're really just, I want everybody to be relaxed. I want them to sleep good. I want them to eat good. I want them to take a notebook full of notes so that when they leave, they know how to prepare after that. Now, level two changes all that. But one of the things I noticed, excuse me, by doing that was
0: that
7: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
3: When people started feeling uncomfortable, they go to their car, and it wasn't that they were getting in there and turn the AC on or turn the heat on, whichever one it was was wanted. It was just that they were by their car because that's the familiar part of their life. That's like an anchor for them, and so they would go to that or. They would start talking about, "Hey, I wish I could tell my wife what's going on or my kids." It's almost like they're going back to what is normal, and wanting to attach themselves because they're starting to get very uncomfortable. And again, there might be a name for that if you guys know what that is. I don't know what it is. It's just something I've recognized for years now. And what what we've been working with our instructional staff is that when we see that happening, we've got to help them with that. I mean, that's our job. I mean, they're coming to us. They're paying us. They're Spending time, energy, and money for us to teach them, we got to go help them fix that. And so we do. I mean, we go, "Hey, you start feeling uncomfortable? Let's let's do this or whatever." You know, we do that as a case by case basis to try to fix it. But it's an interesting thing that when people get on the other side of that, however, they'll do it again and they'll do it again. Some people don't, but the people that want to grow will like are likely to put themselves in those uncomfortable positions again and what I try to tell people is that one way to do that is to exercise every day. I mean, it's not coming. I mean, I mean, this morning I was throwing a kettlebell around and doing all this crazy stuff and it sucked. It was humid here in Kentucky. The ground was wet and I was doing some stuff where I was on my back doing flutter kicks and stuff. And I mean, that sucked. I was soaking wet, but, you know, but I did it for 30 minutes and then I moved on. Right. So doing something simple like that, which is a very uncomfortable thing gets my mind. And there's a whole lot of research on neural pathways connecting the three sectors of the brain. And we can go into that too. I don't know if it's important, but those neural pathways of, okay, life is uncomfortable, but I'm okay on the other side of it. Then we have those neural pathways built between those three sectors of the brain. And now we can rely upon that when we're in other stressful situations, whether it's a car wreck or even having an argument with our spouse. We can go back to those neural pathways. We've been through stress. We've worked through it. We can calm. We, we can breathe through the middle of that and come out the other side and we'll be okay.
1: I think I have seen that. Absolutely. And it's funny how that really pisses my wife off that I don't get a reaction or she doesn't get a reaction sometimes, or we might be in a certain situation. And why aren't you responding? I am. I'm taking in all of this but I don't need to, I don't need to explode. Let's just figure out what the next step is here.
5: Evan. Just a little bit of uh levity, Craig. You should have been with me this morning, climbing a mountain into an elk herd. <laughs> it was, I, I heard the first uh, bull of the season, uh, bugling down in the bottom below me and kicked up a few cows. And I don't know, it was a good, I was working out too, but it, it seemed a little bit different than humid Kentucky with kettlebells. So,
2: That's
3: still stressful,
5: right?
2: So, Shane, have anything on that? I think um, the best thing I can add is this has to be a lifestyle and a mindset
4: of, um, I hate to say, always be prepared. But for me, I so my my background is education. I was a high school teacher and coach and, and um for years. And and I'm a lifelong student and, and so I love to learn. I, I love the, I'm 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 a fairly confident learner in that I like to, I've always been a collector of hobbies. Um and, and the part of the the newness of a new hobby is starting from scratch and learning something and then and then reaching that level of proficiency. So whether it be working out or, or jujitsu or doing something else, um, I think we have a lot of folks that are going to be watching your podcast, um, whether it be guns or survival or whatever else. To me, it's all the same. It's all about learning and rounding out a skill set and complementary skill sets. Another great skill set is learning how to talk to people, learning how to read people, learning how to, you know, we can read our situation. And if I travel from, from North Georgia to Evan, I've got to read the terrain. Well, if I travel from North Georgia to down, down, downtown Denver, I need to read that terrain too. And, and so I think it's, it's just about being a better human being. Uh, you, you know, like I said, making sure that I'm rounded out medically You know, I'm, I'm deadpan calm in a lot of situations, but I've also got a lifelong experience with stuff uh, to where I know, and I've been in enough stressful situations to where I know me losing my stuff doesn't help the situation. So it might sound like a rage against the machine concert in my head, but at the same time, I know like there's no fruit to that, to that reaction of where I'm blowing my stack or whatever else. And so, um, I think it's a lifestyle. I think it's a conscious choice that you have to make on, on a, on a very regular basis to where it becomes part of your life and part of who you are. And, and if you're not making those choices and you expect your level of proficiency to when it does break bad and Murphy comes to visit to be extremely high, we always perform at whatever our lowest level of training is. And so all we can do is try to raise that bar up incrementally to where we gradually, you know, my goal is just to suck less every day. Like that's, it's real simple. Suck less, you know, and, and, and be a little better. To add what you said also about uh, communication
1: skills, being able to read people in talking to baby cops or people that want to become cops. I usually I'm uh, asked, Oh, what sh- what should I do to prepare? Well, let's see here. Speaking classes would be a good one. How to talk to people. You probably want that. Well, what about shooting? What about this? in use of force stuff. You're going to get that. You're not going to get how to talk to people until you've been doing it. Jump on it ahead time and, and take a couple classes, do some public speaking, work
3: on that. And I can't, I can't agree with that anymore. The, I mentioned earlier, I call it the four puzzle pieces of survival mindset, skills, tactics, and gear. And I kind of co-opted this word tactics, not to mean necessarily armed tactics but if you look at the various definitions of tactics one of them is that the strategic methodology that people work together to come to a common end that's just that's just one definition i know there's others but that's one of the things that came out in that research i was doing for that first book and i've told this story a few times with there was one of the stories i have a story at the beginning of every chapter of every book i've ever written and there was one story where there was husband and wife and kids. I'll try to be short. They, they went from Chicago to the Rockies. They were going to uh, rent a Jeep at the airport. Never been in the Rockies. Took the Jeep out. Uh, death by GPS happened is basically what I call it. Um, GPS took them down the wrong road. They went down an old road um went off the side of the road didn't crash hard or anything anyway they get in an argument husband and wife back and forth you did this you don't know how to navigate you don't know how to drive we should have never done this we should have stayed home blah 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 back and forth back and forth back and forth till the, the gentleman left the jeep to go get help he was going to walk walk back to town to, to be the hero well he died uh, from exposure about two miles from the jeep you know he was in a pair of pants and penny loafers and and walking through knee and thigh deep snow And he had no business doing that, okay? So you ask the coroner, what killed that dude? Hypothermia. He died from exposure. No, I mean, it's true. But no, what killed that guy is the lack of communication skill between he and his wife in that Jeep. Because the wife stayed in the Jeep with the kids and were rescued two weeks later. They weren't feeling real good, but they were rescued and they were alive because they basically stayed with their shelter. So what killed the guy? Yeah, hypothermia, but really... The genesis of it was that lack of communication under stress. They couldn't figure out how to make that happen. And I think that's a critical component, component of any event. You know, if you're paddling down a river, Class three rapids, and you're not communicating in an in a open deck canoe with the person you're with, then that's a real problem. That's a real problem. Uh, if, if the GPS breaks down on your app or on your dedicated GPS while you're hiking up in the Rockies, and there's two paths and you don't know how to communicate and work through that problem together with somebody. That's a real problem. And so I think this idea of being able to communicate effectively with others is often no different than the lone wolf idea. It's just really overlooked. That's why I call it mindset, skills, tactics, and gear. We need to build up our mindset. Shane said it so many times tonight already. It's fantastic. At Whether it's attitude, I call it awareness and attitude um c- controlling the ego is another part of a proper mindset i like to be confident but not cocky there's a huge difference between the two and so mindset has its spot skills obviously has its spot knowing how to set up a shelter knowing how to build a fire knowing how to do these things tactics is again is communication and then gear i mean gear makes up i mean I, i'm a flint knapper. i can take a rock and make a knife out of it but by golly i'd rather i'd rather carry a knife that i've brought with me sure i can i can make a a willow bark pack but i'm going to put a hill people gear pack on my back and and carry that instead i mean it's just so gear makes up for a lot of our deficiencies in the mindset skills and tactics i I don't want to have to build a knife in the middle of the rockies because i don't know the, the geology out there well enough to do that i hope all that makes sense and i hope it resounds
2: or you all can add to it and help me improve my mindset i think evan has something to add to it
5: unmuted uh so yeah i was kind of thinking that's really a great segue into uh getting back a little bit on on talking about the the rule of threes um
7: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
5: Because, you know, something I know that we that you I don't remember if it was Craig or Shane said when we were kind of talking about this ahead of time was um, if you have a higher level of skill, you need less equipment. Right. And so if we dial it back into the rule of threes, that's the way I like to think about preparing for an outdoors situation. Okay, so uh, mindset. We just had a great discussion on mindset, and I think I was sitting here thinking, in some ways, that discussion maybe validates this panel more than anything else we could have said, um, because we didn't jump into talking about hearts, because we didn't talk jump into talking about gear. We jumped into talking about mindset and near-death experiences, because those are things that are important to all of us. That's why I go into the backcountry because it's simpler, it's cleaner, it's purer, and I learn. I get grounded. Um so um that that being said, I think, okay, I need to be prepared for each of these things in order of priority. And um so three minutes without air, uh, that really is all of the TCCC stuff. I don't know if either Shane or Craig has anything else to add to that, but you know, I think that's when, when we think of survival, we think about that, you know, a C based class um, and carrying the proper equipment to get that done. Um, I've got a tourniquet first line ready to go in the backcountry, all the time i've got one on my ankle now so that's that's that that three minutes without uh, air slash blood right. oxygen to the brain is essentially what that is so cover down on that because that's a low probability but extremely high consequence scenario in the backcountry. and if you've never seen an aspen tree blown down in the wind i can tell you it is spooky they don't you've if you've ever felled trees with a chainsaw they kind of have this natural way that they uh, they go slowly and then they accelerate and you can kind of figure out what's going on an aspen tree in the wind it gets pushed over it goes from zero to fully accelerated right away and the first time i had one of those come down on the trail in front of me in a windstorm it made me think a whole lot differently about walking through aspens in the wind so if you haven't had that experience, and you're just out you know on a nice day in the rockies and there's a windstorm you may well be at that three minute timetable you may well need that tourniquet you may well need those skills so um i would definitely train up on that um do anybody else want to cover anything on that three minute time frame nope drive on okay so the the next one that's probably the biggest one. And Craig, you have a lot more research than I do, but I'll bet exposure is, is it 90, 95% of the time in in terms of what it is that kills people. And that's really, I think maybe the next thing that we should talk about is how to prepare for uh, exposure. And I'd like to just turn it over to Shane or Craig or whoever wants to jump in on what that means to be prepared for exposure. Go ahead,
3: Shane.
4: Uh, so I, I can speak to this in a couple of different, uh, from a couple of different angles, obviously there's a file thing. I'm just going to push that off to Craig and Craig's going to talk about exposure. I can tell you that from a search and rescue standpoint, um, we answered Ratsar is our nonprofit ratsar.org is our, our company nonprofit. We, and we're kind of like a special operations search and rescue team. Uh, we normally get called in late when things are bad. And I mean, like we almost never get called when it's like, Hey, just come look for this guy. It's always like, this guy's been out five days, weather's been in, you know, it's always sadly worst case scenario. Um, uh, we've seen a pretty significant spike, um, since COVID um, and we have unfortunately been, been a part of quite a few recoveries just in, in 2021 and 2022 alone. We did 40 calls uh, ranging from Virginia to Biloxi, Mississippi um, in 2021 alone. Um, exposure, even in what we would consider to be not too bad, um, got quite a few just in 2021 alone. Um, oftentimes, people that left out were altered, despondent. Uh, dementia something along those lines but in, in, in quite a few cases um I always say Murphy comes to visit when we're least least prepared you know and, and so uh that's where going back to mindset and having a skill set um to go back to what Evan said the more you know the less you carry is what Morris Kahansky, I think it was Morris Kahansky said or at least paraphrased um and so having a skill set that you can rely on should you be exposed uh, in a way to get down off the mountain, get down out of the wind, find a place where you can get some shelter, uh, tactics to get warmed up. Uh, right clothing, we're all gear people. We love gear. I have, I have more money in gear than I do in just about anything. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't matter what you got at home in the closet if you didn't have the foresight to take, take a look at the forecast before you left and plan for contingencies then um, then, um, then that's going to be on you. And, and at best, you'll get a mulligan, and at worst, you know,
2: you'll have to call us to come find your body for your family. Take it away, Craig. Craig. Um, where are we,
3: guys? <laughs> we're talking about thermal regulation, take care of our body heat, right? And I just don't want to go off on a tangent. Okay, just making sure we're on the right page.
2: Yeah.
3: Uh, I think the from a survival perspective, here's how I approach the subject. Well, number one, I'm I'm kind of a gear guy, but I'm not. Um, the The reason for that is I grew up doing period correct reenacting. For example, when I was a kid, I used to wear a loincloth and make flint still fires at one of the local forts, and for tourists. And that's a fun way to make money, by the way. Just running around on loincloth—that's that's pretty cool stuff, making fires. But uh, so I grew up wearing loincloth, moccasins, sleeping under a cedar tree with a you know black powder kentucky long rifle and so i spent a lot of time doing that and so i realized from doing that for so long like a long time you don't really need as much gear but the beautiful thing and this is what i love i mean i I mean i'm an se fan i'm a hill people gear fan i mean modern gear is such a fantastic thing it's a whole lot better than leather leather leggings and moccasins and, and it's a whole lot better pack than having two possible bags that you're carrying everything on. So I, I guess my perspective on fire building is, I, I, well not fire building, but thermal re- regulation is Shane started it, first one is clothes and then sheltering which is actually your first line of sheltering as you're clothes and then fire building and you've got to defeat wind and water, no matter what you're doing. You got to think about those two things. You got to keep the wind off of you if you're trying to stay warm and you've got to keep water off of you if you're trying to stay warm like today in Kentucky. Well, not necessarily today, but in the last couple of weeks, it's been 98 with, you know, nearly hundred percent humidity. And it's a totally different animal. You got to learn how to cool off. I mean, we're doing some research with a federal agency right now on, on how to, how to cool people off in very hot weather in a jungle environment, for example. And so there's a lot of research coming out on that. It's fantastic. But, but the, the issue for me is, again, going back to what all of us have said since we've gone on here, is how do you talk about those things and make them real simple? That's not, not easy to do sometimes for some people. I mean, it would be great to sit in a lecture. I mean, I'm not a guy who, when, when I'm teaching a class, it's a lecture. It's 10 to 15% me talking and, and the rest of the time people are doing stuff. That's what I want people I want people to learn by doing. Um, we can talk about all the great materials that go into gear. I wrote a whole book on that subject too. And I only wrote that book because the publisher made me and they want to pay me a lot of money to do it, quite frankly. I mean, but it's it's good to know that stuff. But really in the end, keep the water and wind off of you. Know how to build fires. If you're trying to make a fire, this is what I try to share with people, you need three things to make a fire. It's eighth grade science. I make it as simple as possible. You need a fuel source, an ignition source, you need oxygen. If you're trying to make a fire and it ain't working, one of those three things is jacked up, need to figure out what it is and fix it. That way we don't have to worry about or concern ourselves with this technical expertise, but we just break it down to what I call eighth grade science. And that seems to simplify it in the minds of the people that I work with so that they know that they can overcome it. If it's a real technical situation, they're not going to remember that under stress. We know this from from you know all of us know this. People don't recreate unless they these things that are in our heads unless they've trained through that a lot and a lot and a lot. But somebody that comes to a class, for example, we've got to have simple methods that they can recall easily under stress, and that's that's the way I do it. I mean, it's just I, I think it for what you guys do, Matt. Uh, I would imagine that if you make the draw stroke out of the holster incredibly technical that doesn't mean you don't talk about the minutiae of the details of it because it's important where your hand is what kind of holster you're carrying where your index finger is and all the things that go along with it that's important but at the same time you got to get the gun out you got to get the gun out and you got to get it on point point. and so it's no different in survival thermal regulation uh, we've we've got to make things simple so people can recall it under stress that's my perspective on it
2: Finn? Uh, just to kind of uh, piggyback off of
4: Craig's point right there, uh, he talks about making fire simple. Uh, it's not that simple. And that's another reason why you need to go to somebody like Craig and take his class is because when we see – like you would think most people would say fire is simple, but they haven't done it in adverse conditions. So you go back to stress inoculation – it's easy to make a fire in your backyard when you want to roast marshmallows and you throw, you know, half can of white gas on it or something else people. But what happens when you don't have that stuff and you don't have the newspaper to crumple up in there, how do you do that? And so this goes back to, let's just take classes out, go with someone more experienced than you and learn from a mentor, because I think from my observation, about 99% of the time that fire fails is it fails due to lack of preparation where people don't invest the time, they want fire now. And so what they wind up doing is they shortcut, they get fire, they get flame, and then they burn all their fuel and they're trying to put big wood on top of little wood and there's nothing in between. And and so there is a technique for it and it it is eighth grade science, but at the same time, there are shortcuts and straight lines to success that you don't know until you have the opportunity to be around people who can say, hey, look, you did everything right. You just didn't do enough. And, and, and to respond to people in our classes, when we are trying to do fire is I always wait for the question and they always ask it. They'll look at you and they'll have these multiple size piles of tinder and they'll say, is this enough? When you get to that question, when they say it's enough, you double it. So if you got to a point where you think, is this enough? No, I'm halfway there double it and then what you get then is a sustainable fire that you can walk away from gather more material do other stuff but doesn't just flame out and and uh, go away real quick so that's uh people have to be patient people have to learn to put the work in up front and develop that skill and, and being around the right people certainly goes a long way
3: let me add something real quick to what he said because i think it's he, he said it and then went right on past it and i want to emphasize it is this idea of having a mentor is there's no amount of calculations that I can give you to tell you how important that is. Again, we're in the business of teaching classes and stuff like that, but being one-on-one with somebody, whether that's a a parent or a grandparent or a buddy or a friend or whoever that is willing to take you outside, because most people are willing to take you outside and teach you things if you're willing to learn, is incalculable how important that is so if you've got that guy or you've got that acquaintance that you know just ask them they'll probably take you outside and they'll probably teach you how to build a fire and their years of experience like Shane was just describing is just so important to being able to do that and again if you can't find that they go to go to Randall's and and learn from them but for the most part I think this idea of even it might be taking it too far, but this idea of a mentor or apprentice relationship that's kind of old school, I love that. I'm a martial artist. I've been a martial artist nearly 30 years now, so I get that aspect of life, and and I'm faithful in my religion, so there's an aspect of that in the, in my religious life, and so those things, I, I like the idea of apprenticing and mentoring, and and so if you ever get to come across somebody like that, then don't hesitate
2: to to utilize it and, and you'll gain so much from it i don't know who raised their hand first take it away evan
5: so i'm worried that uh i'm gonna jump on something great that shane has to say that's very topical to what craig just said but uh so on the topic of thermoregulation, my solution's a lot simpler than fire. Carry a coat. And I know both these guys are going to agree, but it's, you know, we talk about survival and, um, you know, survival is really the exception, right? We don't want to get into that situation where we're needing to start a fire because we're already too cold. I've been there and that makes a difficult task even harder. Right. So I'm all about taking things very carefully, very easily. Now, I'm not going to say you're not going to end up in that ex- exception circumstance, even when you're prepared. But, um, you know, I'm I'm all about not needing to start a fire. Carrying enough stuff not to need to start a fire, um, because I know how difficult it is to start one when you really need one. Uh, and I mean, that's hard because, you um, basically then the conundrum you get into is like, okay, how much weight am I going to carry in the name of preparedness? And how much is that going to affect my mobility? And as a backpacker who likes to travel in the high mountains and cover a lot of vert, that's always something I'm fighting with. Um, you know, like, you know, I talk about, okay, I could sleep under a tarp. I've slept under a tarp for years. I slept under a tarp and then newer tents came out that were lighter and did a better job. And I'm like, man, I sleep better in the tent. Is it worth the extra two pounds for the tarp set up over the tent? And I can tell you, you know, like last night I was, or not last night, two weeks ago, probably, I was in a storm right at Timberline that flooded downtown um, Uray. And I was up in the high country above Uray at that time. And I was in a tent and I was happy to be in the tent and not under a tarp, trying to figure out which direction the wind was going to come from next. So, it, it's not a gear solution. This is all about mindset, but boy, I'd love to cover down with enough gear at least so that probably I don't end up in the exception condition.
4: Shane. So I want to, I'm going to, I'm going to kick this back. I'm going to hit uh, uh, Evan in a wheelhouse here that we, he, he and I have talked about this a little bit um, so I think it's good to, uh, with our increased reliance upon gear and other stuff, I also think it's good at times to safely handicap yourself. And, but I'm about to talk about one of my biggest pet peeves in one of this thing is uh, how primitive fire is in vogue, and it's, it's a skill, and it's cool. Uh, but in the situations we're talking about, um, if I have an acetylene torch, I'm going to use it. Uh, I'm not going to carry it, but if I happen across it and I need a fire, I'm using that. Uh, so oftentimes I will choose to handicap myself with using primitive fire, even a ferro rod, uh, when I have time and comfort in, in the, you know in my backyard or sometimes out if we have the time and, and we're trying to find out some materials. But primitive fire, I think to a lot of points, uh, to a lot of people has a certain lure to it. And, and we use that primitive fire at Reynolds Adventuring Training as a means of, of making sure sh- we're handicapping people so that they do the prep work okay I, it's good that you know how to do the primitive fire but if i'm using my ferro rod that means that my first lighter is out my second lighter is out and i've lost my third lighter and and i've got i've got layers of gear and packs and jackets and whatever else Uh, but that primitive fire method is while it's cool. And it's like, once again, it's great for the ground and other stuff, understand what a lot of us that teach survival and that are in this field, we're not using it to boost our followers or other stuff. We're, We're really using that to drive home, uh, the importance of adequate preparation. And like Evan says, you hope you don't have to get to a point where you have to do that, but, um, But there's a lot to fire i've had to spend a bonus night in the woods on on more than one occasion and a bonus night is a night that i got for free that i didn't plan on staying but i had to um and there's certain something certainly to be said about a fire from a a morale standpoint from a comfort standpoint i may not have needed it but i was damn sure glad i had it um and so it's kind of one of those things where there a fire brings a lot to it it's a vital skill to have in survival uh, both for for survival, but also for your you know your mental inoculation, your attitude inoculation to to help get you through. But I want to make sure that as and I, I know Craig will back me up, and I know Evan will too. Is understand the importance of primitive fire, but of of but why we teach it often is not. We don't want you to necessarily do a bow drill or a hand drill out there if if you're in a survival situation. But if you can get success with a bow drill or hand drill then your preparation for fire for when you really need it, like Evan says, when the stress is there and it's cold and your hands don't work, uh, it might be harder to get a fire with a really good big lighter than it would be with a bow drill set um, if you're that cold and and, in times that short, so.
3: Lighters are what I call the trifecta of survival equipment. They don't cost much, they don't take up much space and they don't weigh much, so why would you not have them? If Daniel Boone could have carried a lighter, he'd have carried three. That's just all there is to it. That cat wouldn't have been making Flint steel fires if he didn't have to. He had to carry a lighter. And so that's why I carry a lighter. I carry a lighter in my pocket. So it's always on me. I've got the backup for my lighter is another lighter.
6: Like, are you a fist pumper, a woo a hand clapper, a high-fiver? I kind of like the high-five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com.
3: No purchase necessary. VGW group void. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. In my pack, because I'm not going to carry around four or five lighters in my pocket. But I, I just it, it, every time we get together, Shane, I agree with you more and more. I, I guess we're, you know, I don't know, connected somehow
1: soulmates.
3: <laughs> I, love, I mean, it's just so true. I mean, this is what I think Evan was mentioning when he said getting us together, because we have the same mindset. Simplicity works. And the obvious thing is a lighter works if, well, there's problems and you got to know how to overcome those problems with a lighter they get, when it gets wet or when it's too exceptionally cold. But once you understand those things, then why not? I, I just don't, I don't get it. Uh, Evan and I talked at a training event where we were training some folks together about how important a garbage bag is. To, from my perspective, a garbage bag is such an incredibly useful tool in the outdoors. And it's a trifecta of survival. Doesn't cost much, doesn't weigh much doesn't take up much space in your pack. Why do you not have one? Why do you not? Why don't we not have one in our chest kits? I do. (laughs) I I do have a garbage bag in my chest kit for that very reason. It does a lot of things and it's, you don't have to spend, you know, I can get a, a name brand bivy, but I can also cut a hole in the bottom of a garbage bag, a 55 gallon drum garbage bag and put it over my head. And now I've got a raincoat. I can put leaves in it and I've got a, I've got a mattress. I can lay it on the ground so I don't get wet. I can gather stuff in it and keep it dry inside the bag. I mean, I can use it to line my hill people gear on lindy. There's your plug right there, Evan. You need to jump on that. I can put. That's what I use as a liner inside my own lindy because it keeps my stuff dry. And then I can use it for a bunch of other stuff. I don't want to. I don't want to have to spend thirty dollars on a, on a uh, dry bag when I can use a garbage bag. I mean, it's it's crazy. I think people need to think more simply like that. I think it's fantastic.
4: We use, uh, you can find contractor-grade yellow 55-gallon garbage bags that now you've got signaling as well, should something be bad, you know, break bad, uh, and all those things. Uh, it, it's And I don't feel bad about cutting it up. Um, you know, we go on these search and rescue missions, and um, my gear, I carry very limited gear in my pack for our patient. Uh, If we find a patient, I'm using their stuff. I don't want to cut up my stuff or use my, I'm I'm, I'm stingy like that in some respects, but I don't think twice if we need patient packaging or other stuff, I can take a long, I can take a garbage bag and fill it full of uh, leaves and debris and have that thing to where we can, we can use it for padding. We can use it to chop. We can do it. We we can use it for a lot of different things. Uh, So uh, that's another one of those things that I've got, I think two or three in the back of every vehicle we own for, for a just in case that's good to have.
1: So I have a question for you guys, uh, kind of going off of the shelter aspect and the clothing aspect and I'll preface it with personal experience. I hosted Pat Rogers back in. So let's see here. It was in Salt Lake 2010. It was a rifle class, wonderful class, wonderful instructor, great guy. Um, The weather was going to be awesome. This was, it was May. Weather was going to be sunny, just right. Day two, it snowed. No one had anything, anything ready for it. I had a light jacket. Fortunately, I had that. I didn't freeze to death. No one froze to death. As a matter of fact, Pat even asked, okay, weather's just gotten really bad. We just got, I don't know. I don't remember how much snow, but a considerable amount of snow. Do you guys want to continue or do you want to call it a day? And everyone kind of looked at each other. No, we're going to keep on going. We're we're going to go, and we're going to keep on going in the class. So one of the things I learned from that was okay. Well, I need to have, I need to be a little bit better prepared when I'm going to classes. So fast forward to the following year, 2011 October, I'm attending a Pat Mack class. Great guy, great class. The winds were so unbelievable, and it was so cold. And what I had that I thought I was prepared with was insufficient. So how do you guys go about determining what's going to be the best bang for your buck buck as far as weight, uh, size and all that kind of stuff for personal shelter,
2: especially if you have to be mobile. I can speak. Oh, go ahead, Shane. Uh, well, um, it goes back to dirt time
4: and experience. And, And so for me, uh, I travel in a lot of different environments and, and I have kind of a core basic kit. We also have these things where we can check forecast and, and kind of at least know what the average temperatures, temperatures are, what the outliers are. Um, you know, like Evan said earlier, your clothing is your first, is your first layer or it's your shelter like that, you know, so having a layering system, quality gear matters. Quality doesn't necessarily mean expensive. Although a lot of times it, it doesn't come cheap. Uh, Facebook marketplace is a great place to procure used gear that some of it's been used very minimally. Uh, People got fat, got skinny, whatever else, man, I'm a Facebook market troll when it comes to gear, when it comes to packs, we've got a lot of people on our SAR team that are always looking for gear and, and they don't have a whole lot of money to spend and it's purely voluntary. They're not getting paid for this. And so there's ways of, of, uh, diminishing that cost, but, but to be able to, The first time you go and train in in sub-zero or super cold weather, it shouldn't be the first time you go out into sub-zero weather. Uh, It's always a bad day if you show up to a class and everybody's pulling tags off brand new gear. It's probably going to get a little sporty, you know. And and so uh, I, I think the more time that you have in the field and the more time you have to adapt and tweak and hone your system, uh, to where you're not caught out off guard by that stuff. And, and like I said in our chat, I don't know if you guys saw it, if you're going to be dumb, you better be tough. Sometimes you just got to go freeze your ass off learn a lesson and you won't make that same mistake, you know. And if you do, then you're just, I guess, tough. You're choosing to be tough. So um, dirt time <laughs> I, is, is dirt time's a great way of proving this
5: stuff. Yeah, there is never a time in the Rockies that I don't in my day pack at least have a puffy layer and a rain shell. That's minimum. There's there's not any time of year where you may not need that in the Rockies. Six six inches of snow in July that's not uncommon. That happens often enough. Um, so, I mean, that's that cuts that's a cut right to the chase answer. But uh, you know, you you asked okay what's light gives you mobility. Um, I think, you know, since I know your audience is skewed sort of military tactical, um, Arc'teryx, Adam. Okay. Okay. So that's, that's a nice shell, but I'm going to say there tends to be a tendency towards, okay, we need the heavier materials the heavier fabrics and, uh, the heavier materials and fabrics generally are less expensive. I mean, there's a dictum in outdoor gear that, um, if you, need to, uh, if you need to save money, just be stronger because you can get totally quality stuff. Well, okay, so here's, here's an example. Back in the 90s when I was a backpacker, my backpack was usually 65 to 70 pounds just for a, a normal backpacking trip. Now my, my pack is more like 50 pounds and I'm more prepared with better gear than I was then. That's how good things have gotten. But you know what, you can still go out and get that gear that puts together a 65 or 70 pound pack. It's still plenty strong, it still works, you're just going to be carrying a little bit more weight. So um, that's part of the answer to mobility just get tougher and you can carry the cheaper gear there's nothing wrong with that.
2: Yes, yeah, I got real
5: specific.
2: Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. And for me, since
1: it's definitely changed and I have a better selection of options.
3: Craig. Well, all I was going to add was the other end of the spectrum. There was a there was a, a section in my second book that the publisher took out because I called it stupid light. And I think this is a term that a lot of these uh, through hikers utilize now where they I called it stupid light in the book and they wouldn't let me call it that because I was calling people stupid kind of thing, which I kind of get it from the publisher's perspective. But there's people that will just grab a tarp and a water filter and just go hike a big trail. And that's that's the people that Shane's going to pick up in a search and rescue mission at some point in time. Uh, It's 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 just mind numbingly just not right that people do the ultralight or stupid light type of stuff. And I'm not saying you don't get lighter gear. There's nothing wrong with getting a lighter tarp instead of a big canvas tarp. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that you've got to have a certain amount of gear, in my estimation, to fix yourself for those law of threes in that unexpected event. And if you are, if you are of the mindset that you're too good and nothing's going to happen to you, then I'm sorry, but you're wrong things happen to the best woodsman out there that were unexpected. And it, it could be a, it could be an Aspen falling down. It could be just a slip on a rock and you busted your ankle. You know, the number one injury in the back country is a broken or twisted ankle. And so that happens to so many people that are solid outdoors people that you've got to be prepared for that. If you, if you break your leg, and you've got to stay there until somebody comes and gets you and you're you're going stupid light. Well, you're probably gonna not gonna make it through the night if it's even remotely chilly. So I, I think we need to be going into the outdoors with a minimal amount of gear to what I, I say it like this, you've gotta have the gear that you need to stay an uncomfortable night in the outdoors. You might not be, you might not have that great path. It's going to make you sleep good. You might not have the perfect tent, but you're going to survive an uncomfortable night in the outdoors. And you need to take that every single time you go into the outdoors, even if it's uh, it, today, this morning. Uh, I, I went into the area that I go into every morning. I was going to do, I was going to work out. I was going to ruck. And I was going to do some study on some plants and stuff. When I got there, there was a tree that fell down literally right in front of me, a ch- chestnut oak. I mean, if that had hit my truck, it had gone through me. I mean, it was huge so you know i had a chainsaw to get myself out uh, i mean i keep that in the truck i mean it's a little thing if you're going into a farm in this part of the world you got to have that sort of thing too or i mean there i was having to get saved by my wife and i don't want that to happen <laughs> have her come and chainsaw me out while i'm trying to get the truck out so yeah minimal amounts of gear uh, can help you get through an uncomfortable night in the outdoors and we need to take it every time we go out
2: Uh, to kind of uh, piggyback off of what Evan said is I look at all this stuff
4: kind of like systems. And, and the best way to, to um, I think, equate this to your audience is many years ago, I started, I decided that I was going to, like having a gun close wasn't close enough. I needed, I needed a gun on me. Um, and, and so I made a lot of rookie mistakes, a lot of beginner mistakes that we all make. Where people look at, uh, they they spend an or inordinate amount of time about from caliber to gun to whatever, and they spend all this stuff, and then they go buy a cheap, shitty holster, um, and then even worse, no one looks at the belt, and so we have to learn. We have to dress around the gun. We have to dress a certain way. We have to act a certain way, and so when we start looking, when I can't tell you how many people that I've, I've kind of bumped into and tried to help along the way is like they're griping about this or I've loaned ho- I've got, I don't know, drawers full of hol- holsters holstered expensive holsters downstairs that I haven't just gotten rid of uh, because I've cycled through stuff and I've found a system. I've been carrying pretty much the same system since 2014 and I, it works for me. Um, but I've loaned people a, a dress leather, double thickness gun belt that I can wear with anything. And I, I don't have the big Cobra buckle. I'm, I'm not really aspiring to be the gray man. I, I prefer to be kind of like the tactical hippie of, if, if anything, I, I want to be like completely out of sight, out of mind. That guy's not a threat, whatever, but that equates it to your audience. And so if you think about your, your gun system and your carry system, and then you start thinking about how to use your outdoor gear, uh, specifically your clothing as a system. And then, and all you do is you add remove as needed, you know, and, and then you go from there. So when you start looking at this like systems, it makes a lot more sense and it makes it a lot easier for me to kind of digest in that sense.
1: That has been a big, big, big uh, discussion point that I've been pushing is that whole nuance and how any of these, if I can make an argument why I would choose one over another that's nuance. And it's uh, interesting. Again, more of this stuff, how it interweaves with survival aspects, carrying defensively. It's cool. So what's the next, what's the next S that we need to get? Or they're not, they're the next uh, of the th- uh, ne- next rule of threes.
3: Uh, That's... If we're going past thermal regulation, then we're going into water.
5: Yep. I'd say drive on Craig.
1: (laughs) Clearly you, you just carry it all right. That's the only solution.
3: Uh, That is, that is a solution to carry some. And I think it's a good solution to carry some. An answer,
1: not the answer.
3: Right. And even before that, walk into the wilderness hydrated. It's, that's one of the things that's often missed is if you're hydrating on the trail, you're already up behind the eight ball on being hydrated you need to be hydrated every day so that when you go into a situation you're already hydrated you're just adding to that Uh, i think that would be the one of the biggest things what is the statistic shane how many like 80 some percent of people walk around the united states dehydrated all the time anyway it's some way up there evan do you know look at evan drinking over there as i'm talking
4: yeah it's, it's uh it's inordinately high and it's something uh if we take searchers out of the field um i mean it's probably 90% of the time dehydration issues and the other, you know, five to 10% is going to be some 5% is going to be some type of collective catch all. And then you talk about lower leg extremities, uh, lower extremities being an issue where people, you know, catch a break, catch a fall, twist an ankle, something along those lines. It's just pretty common hydration is, is we all walk around dehydrated every day. And so going into the woods, hydrated is a
2: great start having a plan for hydration uh and then also um we there's a lot
4: of situations where people are afraid to drink the water and we're talking about a kind of a short window of necessity here um if push came to shove and i'm trying to get out i'm gonna drink out of a horse hoof if i have to i mean we're gonna do whatever's necessary to get out i've had giardia twice it is not pleasant but they also make a great feel for that that if i had to if i had to drink from a from a bad source um, if it was one of those situation critical things i would rather drink bad water and be hydrated and then 10 to 14 days later deal with it if i'm if i'm thinking i'm going to be out in 24 48 hours so craig may offer a a different take on that but that's that's one of the things where you can't move if you're not hydrated or if you're dehydrated to the point where your leg's locked up and you don't work. And then you start getting altered as well. So that's something to consider.
3: No, I'm, I'm pretty much on the same page, Shane. It's I call it you become a non-functioning human at a certain point. And then then it, it, even if you've got some hydration left, you're a non-functioning human. But what I would like to introduce here, because I mentioned it earlier, and this is a real problem right now for us, is – Eastern Kentucky is completely flooded right now. And we trained a bunch of federal agents several years ago that responded to Texas when they had so much flooding down there. And those agents, they literally called me on the phone going, Craig, we are surrounded by water, but it is so bad. We can, we, we've done everything that we've been trained to do, and it still smells so bad we cannot make ourselves drink it. And so I went to the Kentucky Division of Water, and we did a bunch of studies in the lab to try to overcome this problem, and, and I think we've overcome it. But the same thing is happening right now in eastern Kentucky. Eastern Kentucky is underwater. Uh, Ten inches of rain in about 12 hours in eastern Kentucky means, you know, cell towers are sliding off the hills, and uh, churches and houses and buildings and downtowns are completely submerged underwater. Um, homes are literally washing down, hollers down there. We call it hollers here. You all probably call it hollows or ravines or something. But anyway, these people are surrounded by water and there's not a bit of it they can drink. It's full of feces, it's full of dead humans, it's full of dead animals everywhere. And so it ain't, it's not gonna happen. They're not gonna be able to drink that at all. So what do you do to overcome that? You've got to have a plan. I think uh, Shane just said, you gotta have a plan for that sort of eventuality because We've been talking a whole lot about wilderness because I think that's where, you know, that's in our wheelhouse. But the the law threes that we've been discussing is very applicable in an urban environment as well. Uh, you, matter of fact, I think that's possibly where the three seconds comes into play more uh, more so than maybe in the wilderness. You've got to have that ability to situationally aware, uh, Shane said it earlier, read people so that you, you're walking into a situation, you see that there's a... a an actor there that's a danger you you leave that situation you know that's an urban situation same thing even though it's uh, eastern kentucky one of the most impoverished parts of the united states that those people went to bed a few nights ago and somewhere in the middle night they've got water halfway up the walls in their living room Mm -hmm. what do they do you got to have a plan for that and those people will have a plan moving forward some of them didn't live so they won't. And so I think it's worthy of our consideration as well and not, not take it just uh, into the wilderness because we all love the wilderness, so we talk about it a lot and prepare people for it. But I think the majority of your listeners and the majority of people in the world are in towns, and so we need to prepare them for the same eventuality and, and know how to take care of it.
2: Yeah, well, we were-
3: oh,
4: Go ahead. We worked a Caruso flood in North Carolina last year in the same type deal. Flood waters are off as far as uh, we worked that place. They had six fatalities there, and we were looking for days for that six person. Um, chemicals, like it, it just smelled like death from animals, from fish, from everything. Uh, so, yeah, uh, that caveat is very true and very, uh, fitting with where Craig and his community is at right now. Uh, flood water is a whole different thing as is swift water. I'm getting ready to go teach swift water class up in North Carolina this weekend. Uh, my best advice for swift water is stay out. Uh, don't get in it because it's a whole nother animal. Um, uh, if you're not sure, then then stay out of the water, but, um,
7: that plan uh,
4: goes back to uh, we start thinking about preparation and and having a plan and all that stuff. Well, a lot of that stuff is home-based where in our home. So what happens for whenever you, uh, you don't have that. So that's, that's a great point and something to consider. That reminds me,
1: and this actually goes to the next step, but we don't need to go to this next step right now, but, uh, Talking about having a catastrophe here at home. Okay, food storage. Okay, we're we're having an issue with uh, supply food supplies here. Well, then I'm just going to go out to the I'm going to go out in the wilderness and hunt. Okay, so everyone's thinking
2: that there won't be any animals. Now, what do you do?
5: Anybody who uh, thinks they're going to hunt to subsist has never hunted in the West. That's all there is to it. Um yeah not the east either. There's way more people in the east and a lot less land. It's you know, when I was a kid, uh we lived in Texas for a while and there was a family ranch, and we go out there and shoot six or eight deer anytime we wanted to. That is not how it is in the mountain west, not even close. Um, so yeah, that's well that to me, that almost goes back to the lone actor fantasy, right? It's, it feels the same to me. Like, oh yeah, I'm going to just, <laughs> I was, so, you know, we live in a pretty small town here, great resources. And, uh, you know, I was teaching class to some locals once and they were very survivalist minded. And they're like, oh, we're going to, we're going to bug out to Mud Springs, this little campground up the hill. And I was like, what are you going to do? Go hang out in the mountains at Mud Springs. I mean, I bugged out. I'm already living in Grand Junction. That was my bug out plan. It's strategic. There's a whole lot of reasons I live here. So, you know, that's any, rate, We could go down the the preparedness and, 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 and food storage, um, rat hole. And that's, that to me feels like a whole other topic. Um, that can be that, the next episode. If you, if we need to, yeah. I'm all for it. Could be. Uh, but you know, to your point about water, both of these guys, um, live in a a much less arid environment than I do. Uh, So, you know, I can just tell you for me, the desert, the mountains, um, my minimum is three quarts of water. And that's based on a lifetime of being in the outdoors. I know that three quarts of water um, will get me through a day if I'm not really too active. Um, But if I'm moving somewhere, I'm going to have to come to a stop um, by about one. I'm just i'm i'm gonna run out of water if i keep moving and so uh you know i've got a whole video i don't know how many of your listeners are where, and i know these guys have resources too but we have what's called the longhouse instructional series on on our youtube channel and i talk about water procurement in the intermountain west and there's all kinds of little tricks i use to figure out where water is going to be to pay attention where i can find it um and So there's a whole lot of detail I could go into, but the bottom line is for me in this environment, um, I basically carry enough water to get me through a day and I stop moving if I haven't found the water source I expected to throughout that day. And it's, you know, the climate is certainly variable. There's, um, there are creeks that that I've run into, particularly late in the summer when the snowpack's all melted off. It's a marked creek on a map. I'm expecting to get water from, and I get there, and it is not there. And so that's why I tend to carry, you know, more water out in the desert. And this is this is one of the points of homeostasis. Um, at least in an arid environment, water gives you the ability to cool yourself. It doesn't work when it's um, you know there's a lot of humidity in the air, but we cool ourselves through sweating. So i go through a gallon and a half two gallons a day very easily and so my standard for a trip out there is even higher than that three quarts of water go ahead shane uh
4: to kind of add to evan's point is uh i was fortunate enough to go hang out with evan and his brother um a couple of years ago. And, and I know Craig and I are from the humid South. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, we're routinely at 80 degree or 80% humidity. I mean, I, I break out in a sweat walking from my house to my mailbox. and It ain't that far. All right. So, uh, when I go to a place as a, I've always been pretty keen on hydration levels and stuff, simply because that's my backgrounds in endurance mountain biking or endurance racing and doing some other stuff. I know that that um, hydration directly uh, affects performance for sure. Um, but I go to to Evan's extremely arid environment and I don't sweat. And, and so I don't, I don't, and I say, I don't sweat. I don't feel sweaty because it comes off me and it, it comes out of me and off me almost immediately. Uh, and, and so it's hard for me to gauge uh, my output. And so what I have to do there is to make sure I set kind of some benchmarks for how much water I need to be drinking per hour of exertion. Um, you know, and that's not a calculation. It's just like, I need to drink some water or I'm not peeing nine times out of 10. It has to do with, Oh God, I'm not peeing or I'm not the color I need to be. Um, and so whenever you travel into new environments and other stuff, um, you have to be real careful. You know, we spend time in the jungle too. You go to the Amazon and then that's all you do is sweat. You sweat when you're standing, you sweat when you're sitting, you sweat when you're sleeping. And so it's one of those things where you're going to have to be adaptable to that goes back to dirt time experience, traveling with a mentor or someone who knows the area um and it's no different than if you're a gun guy and you're going to a city it's going to be good to have someone tell you uh hey you probably don't want to go there that's not the place where you need to be or it's not the place where you need to be after dark you know so uh that goes back to that same point point. Man, i think you guys could have a million dollar
1: uh product a color wheel color of pee. and so if it's brown yeah you, you need to drink a bit more white you're good clear you're good
4: that's already out there like you can see it, it will tell you basically how much you need to drink based on the color generally that's
5: hilarious that people need a guide yeah so a point on that um and i've done this to myself twice severely once before I knew what it was once when I knew what it was and just wasn't thinking and that's uh, hyponatremia and that's that's basically you're drinking so much water you've washed all the nutrients out of your system you get into a low electrolyte situation it feels horrible it feels like you're going to die and it's not immediately apparent um, to you or to medical personnel unless they're specifically looking for what the issue is and it happens easily in these arid areas. Um, you know, I just took Wilderness First Responder, finally. I've been wanting to take that course for years, but the instructor's from Moab. And uh, it happens all the time in Moab because it's hot and somebody knows they need to hydrate. And so they drink and they drink and they drink and they drink, but they're not keeping their electrolyte balance up on that. So uh, I just have to mention it because it's, it's so insidious and yet really so devastating.
4: Uh, that's something we're seeing more and more. And the problem with it is it masks itself and presents a lot like dehydration. And, and so one of the keys to that is, is to make sure that you've got some type of caloric intake, you know, whether it's a bite or something going on. And like what Evan says, you can't out hydrate this condition. It basically it takes the law of osmosis. Your blood will no longer, it's actually pulling it's pulling nutrients and, and stuff out of your blood to where you can't absorb anything. So, the only fix is going to be IV and some other stuff and uh, definitive care. So, the, one of the ways you do that is you make sure you fuel your body and you fuel it in a way that's consistent that it works, that you don't wait and get, get behind the curve of hydration or out of behind the curve in fuel. So, so much stuff there that you can munch on. That's got a high caloric value that doesn't upset the apple cart when it comes to your stomach, when you're being active, but it definitely goes a long way.
2: Good point. So is that kind of like the protein version of rhabdo? I would think it's similar, but different. Uh, it's just the issue with it is that people think they're behind because they're feeling bad. And so they pound water and it compounds the problem. And for people not familiar with rhabdo, uh, rhabdomyosis.
1: Yeah, basically I've, I I haven't experienced it, but I've seen others and a high exertion, but not enough uh, protein in their diet and their muscles start to get broken down and proteins are pulled from the muscles
2: because of that exertion. I could see that also being a wilderness issue. And see, that's why I'm here because I really don't know anything about that and I need to study that and know more about it. So thank you, appreciate that. So do we have more on water or hydration
5: rather? uh craig uh so i know you and i are aligned on this uh pins are a gimmick they don't work they don't work at all um anybody who's used one happily they just got lucky because the incidence of giardia in water is actually relatively low and so they've been playing russian roulette every single time and um just getting lucky yeah yeah exactly that um so I'm aware of one study um, that the Overland Journal people did. It was a laboratory study, uh, and the Overland Journal people were testing different water purification/slash filtration systems. And the Sterry just simply did not render organisms inert, it didn't kill them. And, uh, you know, Craig, you can talk to the other half of the story, but that was point two on the exact same thing.
3: Yeah, I think something you just said, Evan, is key for people to understanding water is that there's a huge difference. And the, these two terms get interchanged between filtration and purification. There's a significant difference between the two. And what Evan is referring to with that particular apparatus is basically the look, use of UV light to you never kill those bacterial contaminants in the water. You basically make them sterile. And the, the issue with a SteriPen, let's talk about it specifically, and maybe we shouldn't, but uh, but I'm going to anyway. But basically, you, you put the SteriPen in a bottle of water and you spin it around in there for X amount of time, whatever the manufacturer's recommendation is. If, if there's any sediment whatsoever in that water, and there's a bacterial contaminant, for example, in the water on that sediment, and it goes around and around. It basically never comes in contact with a ultraviolet light. And so the contaminant is still there. And it's not that if you take the contaminant in, because a lot of us have these different bacterial uh, things in our gut. The issue is that if it goes into your gut and it can continue to multiply, then it will rapidly, exponentially multiply. And now you're vomiting. Now you have diarrhea and the only fix for that and Shane mentioned it earlier already is to get some sort of definitive care. And you can't fix that. You can't you can't pick some medicinal plant and ingest it and fix that in the wilderness. You just can't. And so you've got to be incredibly incredibly cautious with how you filter and purify water. There's a lot of devices out there and and there's some of it I quite frankly I'll be as frank as I can. I don't want to speak too much on it. Because we are right now ourselves, our company is in the middle of a study on this. And we've got some really, really intelligent people that are talking about a lot of equipment in the survival world is just garbage. And I don't want to say that they're garbage here tonight, only because this might be something Matt we can come back and talk about when I get this study done. Okay. Because we've got a lot of water quality people. We've got two water quality people in particular in our body of community of people that do nrs stuff that basically monitor and look at water eight to 12 hours a day at work every day and so they have an expanded amount of knowledge beyond what somebody like me has on water and they know all these contaminants and they know what a survival i'm not going to name any names on this they know what a, when a filter says this that it's they're lying it's marketing what i can speak to is that there's a lot of filters out there and I'm going to do my best not to name any of them. Okay. But there's a lot of filters out there that say they're 99.9% effective against Giardian and Cryptosporidium or some variant of that. Okay. So how can they, the, the first thing that I studied when I was writing a second book on gears, okay, how did they come to that conclusion? Here's how they came to that conclusion. There's a lab in Florida that basically handles all ANSI certifications for water equipment. That go, that ranges from everything from aquatics, pools, um, uh, hot tubs, and filters. Uh, water filters that are on your their fridge, on your sink, you carry in your backpack because it's a survival filter. So what they do with their water is they take that water out of a tap, which is basically what we call city water here in Kentucky, good, good clean water. They take Giardia off the, the shelf, they put it in the water, and then they test that piece of equipment with that the big piece of the puzzle they're missing is sedimentation because every water source in the natural world has sediment in it and so there's two things that come out of that number one the size that they say that a lot of these contaminants are they're actually smaller than that they're actually smaller than what they say giardia is this this is not me talking right now. These are people that are inside my organization that do this for a living, not me. I don't do I don't do water quality for a living. They do. And w- we've gone to the Kentucky Division of Water and done exactly what Evan is saying with us a, a lot of different pieces of equipment. And we've taken water from the environment and taken it to the lab and tested these things out. And I'm just here to tell you, filters don't work. They just they're just not very good at doing it, filters, SteriPens. If you've got particularly viral contamination water source, which quite doesn't happen often, I will give that caveat, but everybody in Eastern Kentucky is right now dealing with viral contaminated water. I'm just using that as an example. You've got to have some sort of purification tablet drops or something to take care of that, or you're gonna have dirty water. And it's no different than what Evan said and you demonstrated, it's basically a game of Russian roulette. Because when I say the things that I'm saying right now, because I'll say these occasionally online, talking about them, trying to get data, people will say something along the lines of, well, I've used it for 20 years. I've never been sick. Well, I'm happy for you. It's probably going to happen at some point in time if you keep doing that. And so, again, I want to I want to summarize with all that, that I'm in the middle of that. So I'm sharing some topics that I'm really only scratching the surface on. And I've been doing this since 2006. Right. And, and it's, and I'm still in my estimation, scratching the surface. And I'm, I'm trying to interview and talk to people that are a lot smarter than me on those topics. and, And maybe we'll come back and talk about that, Matt.
1: So to frame this, especially under the umbrella of survival outdoorsy type stuff, Water is one of those commodities that obviously we need to live. If you did drink some kind of contaminated water and the outcome was vomiting, diarrhea, you name it, what just happened to the water in your body? So was that a negative or a positive? Just drawing this out for people that that I don't know if they're paying attention. Sounds to me like it kind of would be a good idea to make sure that you have some way of uh, purifying if possible, because taking that yeah. risk, you're taking how many steps back in your overall progress and health?
3: Yeah, this, and, and again, I, I want to be clear. I, I'm literally just digging into the subject matter because it's, it's heavy on me because I've had two guys in particular, again, that have just like, Craig, that's not true. You got to quit telling people that. And so I quit telling people the things I've been telling them because I've been educated by somebody smarter than me, but, the thing that that I think deals with your question is that the only solution for us if we get those contaminants in our body is is better care. And you're not going to get it in the field. You're going to dehydrate yourself to the point of not being a functioning human really quickly if you're vomiting and you have diarrhea, like incredibly quickly. So now you've got somebody else who's trying to take care of you and so you've taken two people out of the equation if you're in the backcountry by yourself. And if you're in the back or if you're out there with somebody and if you're in the backcountry by yourself, then you're screwed. You're not going to have the energy to hike your way out. You're up in those altitudes and that temper line that Evan was talking about by yourself. He's not going to make it out if he's done things incorrectly. So I think the central issue is, is this, is that what we've done and well, why are we here? Okay, so we're wanting to quickly, effectively, and efficiently take water from the environment and make sure that it's okay for us. And so we keep coming up with these devices and these pieces of equipment and these chemicals where we can make that as quick as possible. That's why we have um, straws that we drink through. Stick in the water, drink through, it's clean. It's not clean. Some of those contaminants are small enough to go straight through that thing. And so we're trying to do things so quickly. Our methodology of teaching people is to make it a multifunctional way of getting the clean water. Boil if you can, tablets, filter, because the tablets make it taste bad. And that's part of the problem that people don't want to use tablets because it tastes bad. And then if you use a filter after you've done the boiling and you've done the tablets, then the filtering is going to help you with the taste. And so we've taken that to the lab and it shows up really, really well. Uh, it's an effective means, but quite frankly, we've got to have, when I say we, I'll say I, I've got to get some other people smarter than me that helps me run through that in a, in a more, um, more dedicated manner than what I've done with it so far.
5: has come up a couple times in my mind. Uh, I got to do a plug for, um, the DeLorme InReach. Um, so I'm old enough. We're all old enough that there was a time when we traveled in the backcountry without the ability to, to reach out to folks. Um, and you know, I, when I was younger, definitely got in some circumstances where maybe I was going to die if I didn't, you know, toughen up or make some better decisions or something. Um, we now have technology that allows us to push a button and send a message out via satellite that works anywhere in the world. Sometimes you get down a deep slot canyon; It's not, may not work that great. Um, I have mixed feelings about it. Um, I think some people uh, think that it works like a cell phone. Well, no, let me just step back to me the backcountry is a place that should be approached on its own terms, if possible. Um, you know, the humility, the, uh, the caution that comes from not having that safety net is super important. That being said, uh, as an older man now who has a wife and kids and responsibilities, I, I feel like it would be unethical for me to travel as I do solo in the backcountry without one of these devices. And, um, it's, again, I try to pretend that I don't have it from a um, mindset standpoint, the, the amount of care I take, um, you know, I haven't had a mechanical injury in the backcountry, because I am extremely careful about how and where I walk, even the way that I think about it. Um, but all of that being said, if, if you need to get to definitive care, that DeLorme inReach is the answer. And it may not be a four hour extraction, it might be two days, it might be four days, but at least it's a way to reach out. And so uh, that's something that it's technology. I hate it, but by the same token, incredibly useful piece of equipment. And in just doing
1: a quick search, it doesn't look like the, for what they do, it doesn't look like they're completely breaking the bank.
4: No, and I think- no. I think it's uh DeLorem has sold out to Garmin. Um, I think it's a Garmin in reach now. And there's a, uh, um, there's a monthly fee associated with that. You can also um, text. So you can hit a pre-program button that says I'm okay. You can also text through it in a lot of places. Uh, the spot tracker device used to be really popular. And I think, I think Garmin or DeLorem uh, now Garmin uh, has kind of uh, Rewritten the book on that, but uh, it is something. I ride a motorcycle a lot, and that is something I've spent a lot of time by myself, um, and and have, am prone to taking a side road or something that's maybe not necessarily on route. Um, and, and so I, it's got me thinking a lot, especially with all the stuff that we do uh, in the way of recovery and people who didn't follow the script and didn't follow traditional norms. And uh, the Garmin inreach is definitely
2: something that's on my short list.
3: Yeah, I remember when I was writing my third book, which is a navigation book, um, I wrote in the book, Tracy Trimble and I wrote that book together. When I, wrote, I wrote in the book that uh, at the time of the writing that dedicated GPS units were uh, still a thing that sh- people should have access to and utilize, that the apps that were on phones were subpar and so that's the where I directed people to purchase. By the time that book went to the editor and came back to me, I rewrote that because the technology is advancing so quickly that now GPS apps, as far as mapping apps, in our estimation, are just as good as any device that you can buy, Garmin or what have you, other than this texting feature, which is where they are making themselves um, still usable in, in that space, okay? It's my estimate that we will quickly be able to do the same thing with our phones in within five years, easily within five years. We'll have that same texting function to satellite on our cell phones. There's a lot of people in this world that already have that function on their cell phones. We're just not privy to it yet in in the regular world, but we we will have that in short order. And so it's just, we already have a GPS satellite on our phone. You don't have to have cell coverage to be able to utilize it. It's a GPS. It's not cellular triangulation. It's an actual GPS unit that's within your phone. So utilize that. But as far as communicating with others, I think we're going to have that quickly on our phones. Makes sense. Shane?
4: Uh, So we use... um... For search and rescue, we use a program called Caltopo or SARTopo that is extremely powerful. Uh, I know we used to be able to make my topo maps and, and do all that stuff. Uh, with Caltopo, we can go in and make maps of our area, the AO, wherever we're going to be. Uh, we can add layers, we can add shading, we can add topo. Here's the cool part is in real time, if I download that map and you're on the map sitting at home, you can watch me track real-time on the GPS. The Cal Topo app on our phone, I'm using an iPhone, is more accurate than what we're seeing with modern handheld GPSs. And it works in airplane mode. And so with or without cell phone service. So I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that at all. Extremely powerful, and it is quickly becoming... We used to use an app for tracking, and, and what we're trying to do here is track our searchers to see what kind of probability of detection uh, that they're going to get. And ha- basically, you can qualify how well have, has our searchers searched this particular search zone. Uh, with CalTopo, Sartopo, I can quickly get these people to download a map. I can get them tracking, and I can see the exact path that they take, if they deviate from that path, what they do. Uh, It's extremely powerful, and it's something that not a lot of people know about, uh, but it's very, very cool, and it's very, very useful, and it's very, very inexpensive.
3: Uh, Ditto for CalTelpo. That's what we're trying all our people into. We used to be on Gaia, but the added bonus, being able to have a team feature, which is what we have now, and we can track one another live if, if we have cell coverage for that aspect of it it just makes Caltopo so Caltopo such a usable uh, such a usable again it's it's it doesn't weigh much it doesn't you don't have to carry a standalone GPS unit. It doesn't cost that much compared to a GPS unit and it's just I, I think everybody should have Caltopo Gaia or ultras whatever you want to utilize they work they work exceptionally well. Uh, we just happen to be big fans of Caltopo as well.
5: So there's actually a bigger uh, topic here that we've kind of touched on um, and Craig wrote the book on it. Uh, so I heard a stat that something like 80% of civilian survival situations are precipitated because they got lost. So, and I don't remember the exact stat, but it's, it's big. Point being, your number one survival skill is going to be land navigation. And so you got to learn how to do it. I mean, we're talking about it as if, Oh, we use these tools. That's because to us, we know that that's huge. But if you're not oriented towards knowing land navigation, knowing where you are, knowing how to figure out how to get back to where you came from, that is your number one training issue. In my opinion, anyhow, I don't know if the others would agree or not.
3: Yeah. I think, you know, from my part of the world, it might be different because you guys are have different geography and and topography than we do. But back when I was a kid and I would talk to my granddad, he would talk about, well, you go down 1950 and you go across there until you hit 460 and you go down 460 until you cross the river. And there was always a constant recognition of where you're going when you're driving somewhere, where you are located. And this was just part of one of those things that came through osmosis of being a person. Back then, Maybe it's a rural person. I don't know if it was the same for my counterparts that were, you know, lived in bigger cities, what have you, but my family always talked about that stuff. So regularly, knowing where you are and where you're going, even if you're not using a map, even if you're not using GPS was just a thing, we just don't, we've got so far away from that of recognizing where we are. Uh, And the story that I told earlier that these park rangers have come up with this term, it's not my term, death by GPS. Uh, You know, I carry a road lattice in my truck at all times, too, because my Google Maps and my Cal Topo, those things run on batteries. Mm -hmm. And so I want something in my vehicle that we're going to utilize that we can take in a situation where, hey, the batteries are dead or I broke my phone. Uh, Again, Tracy Trimble's uh, one of our instructors. He's also part of a very active search and rescue team. And I can't remember who it was, but he was telling me a story about a real accomplished outdoorsman who just happened to slip next, I believe it was a Creek and cracked his phone on a rock near the Creek. And so he went from utilizing a GPS, being very comfortable in the outdoors to, okay, I don't have that anymore. Now all of a sudden, boom. So what's your backup? So we're big fans of I've transitioned even after a lot of training with him and and on my own of utilizing an app or GPS, but also always going wherever I'm going with a paper map backup so that uh, i do have backup for that it's no different than the lighter and again if you use caltopo that shane mentioned that we utilize as well the same app has a desktop version that you can sit at your desk at the house print off any topography map in the world basically for the cost of the ink that you use to print it off with and the paper that's it and so you can you can set the scale you can set uh, different points that you've put on it that you've saved on your app while you were afield. You can set points on your desktop so that when you go afield, they're there. And then you have the ability to know what's coming. You can look at the topography. You can look at the elevation changes and know, hey, if I walk this, you can do that sitting at your desk at the house or in your car at the parking lot so that you know what's getting ready
2: to come and you're you're prepared for it. you guys remember Triptix from AAA?
1: Yeah. And that's, uh, as you guys are talking about this, I'm just thinking about how things used to be and still using computers where we're printing off MapQuest and the the natural progression of, so uh, I was born in California, raised in a suburb of Chicago. Now I'm here in Utah. Every summer we would take these road trips from California to Chicago and my dad would go to AAA and get these triptychs. And basically what this did was this gave you a linear map, exactly how to go, go from point A to point B. Cool idea. Fast forward, MapQuest, we, we punch in whatever we want to go to, we print it out. Now we have our, we, we use our phones. What's going to happen though, when all this technology goes away, something happens, everything's going digital. How many people have these these basic survival skills or these basic anything skills? It's kind of a scary thought. And this is where having a actual physical tangible map kind of makes sense. It's kind of like having
2: actual books made out of paper as opposed to having everything digital. Yeah, I'll jump on that. Um you gotta you've gotta have the skill to do both
3: if you're going to be a proper woodsman uh, that's that's my term for it if you're going to be self-reliant which is another term that i like um, being able to rely upon yourself and the skills that you have you've got to have uh, another simple way of saying it is you've got to have contingencies for every single thing that you do in the outdoors and the equipment that you're carrying i mean so much so that you should be able to read the environment and and utilize it to tell you things you know there's, there's just a world of people that were able to read the signs and it tells them things. We are so far removed from that that your typical person can't tell that weather's coming, let alone well, or without an app. And I'm, I'm a big fan of using an app, but they can't smell petrichor and they don't feel the wind changing. They don't tell. They can't see the barometric changes uh, with the leaves and the trees and all the things that are indicators that weather's changing. And those are all things that are incredibly valuable that we we need to to make sure we've got in our back pocket. Hey, I'm a fan of technology too. I'm gonna use it. I'm gonna use that app because the weather app is gonna be that's it's just so nice. It's like the lighter again. I'd rather do that than make that bow drill fire that Shane was talking about earlier. I don't I'm I'm not a fan of that stuff either, Shane. I'm just not a fan of I'm gonna be I'm gonna be all about that lighter. So but having these other skills in your back pocket back pocket or, you know, the contingency for the contingency, if you will.
1: So Google goes down and all of a sudden everyone forgets or doesn't know how to boil water anymore.
2: Uh, these basic skills, it just makes a lot of sense. We could go
5: a long ways down that rabbit hole, but, uh, that's something that I always, well, okay. So there's survivalists, right. Who have never been backpacking. Well, if you haven't been backpacking, you got no idea what your skills are. You got no idea what your mobility looks like. There's so many things you got no idea about that are part of your contingency plan. Uh, I also hear There's a whole lot of, I'm on a little sub forum of guys who uh, want to come hunting out West and they're, they're obviously backpack hunting specifically, but they've never backpacked and i to me that's like unfathomable like if you want to build survival skills if you want to get an idea what you can do with less you got to spend some time outdoors that's the only way you're going to figure out what you can do and you know it's one of my thankfully i don't see it much anymore i don't know if it's still in vogue on the internet but here's my survival loadout And you know, the, you add it all up and it's like a hundred pounds of gear and like this much ammunition and stuff. And it's like, man, if you've never carried a hundred pounds of gear in the mountains and I have, you just, you, you don't have any idea what you're talking about.
4: Often that will be in a pack that's not made to carry 30 pounds too. That's what always cracks me up. They spend 4,000 on gear and 40 bucks on a pack. Hey, Jan sport is a good brand. Jan Sport would be a Cadillac based on some of the stuff I'm seeing people use as a bug out bag. I hate that term. Sorry, oh, stepping on toes. A bug
1: out anything is you no know, pass. Well, my brother goes uh, bear hunting. Brother in law, bear hunting, and then he also goes and assists with bear hunting. And the amount of equipment he takes is unbelievable. Where he usually borrows his 350 super lightweight 357. And I bring some concerns up, but nope, ounces equal pounds. He's going to bring the lightest possible thing. Okay.
2: Have you shot it? We are going to have to talk about something gun at the end, by the way. Well, go for it. Start talking about guns. I'm all right with that
3: too.
1: Well, don't we have one last uh, uh, food
2: to cover? Sure. Bring a granola bar. You'll
3: be fine. Yeah. Am I running with this one too? You all come on.
5: No, 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 I'll, I'll I'll jump on it. Uh, Well, so you look at three weeks, the first question, despite what all the TV shows are about, is food really any kind of a concern at all in a survival situation? And the answer is there's a whole lot of other things that have to go wrong before it's much of a big deal, particularly, you know, dudes looking like a, Craig and I, who carry a little bit of survival food with us, it, you, you just got a long time before it's going to be a big area of concern. That's um, called planning. You know, <laughs> right. Uh, so that being said, the, and the other thing is, Oh, you misidentified plants. You're trying to live off the land. You make yourself sick because you're eating the wrong stuff. Um, you're spending all of this energy trying to procure food. I mean, that's a, that's a whole mess. Um the flip side of that is the homeostasis argument, and that's where the the rule of threes. You, you got to think critically about it, as Craig said. Uh, food in the backcountry helps you preserve homeostasis. So uh, I'm not going to starve in three weeks, but if it's um, you know borderline cold, I might need food to get myself warmed up. And so to that extent, food is a little bit more of a short range um, problem. You, you can run into an issue where like, well, if I had food, I could move because I'd have the um, energy to support that movement and keep myself warm. But because I don't have food, I really need to shelter in place because in order to maintain homeostasis, because I don't have that food, that moving food, shelter in place is what I need to do. I guess that's my thing on food in a nutshell. I
1: really like that you're bringing up homeostasis because that really makes a lot of sense with all this because that's we want to maintain that balance because if it's off, something's wrong and something needs to make up for it.
5: Yeah, Shane said said that. I think, came from better men than I, but yeah, homeostasis is what it's all about.
3: Shane said something earlier about lazy man or something like that. Uh, I can't remember exactly what it was, but survival is a lazy man's game. The The more things that you do, the more energy you've got to make up from your environment. So you can either carry it or find it in your environment. So if you can casually walk up a hill, then casually walk up a hill because you're going to burn more calories running up that hill. And you're going to burn more calories carrying a heavier pack. So you're going to have to find more calories in your mind. You're going to have to pour, find more water in your environment. So. You know that doesn't mean that we don't go up side that mountain because going up that mountain is where it's at for a lot of us, and we've got to do that, and that's important to to maintain our species as as relevant. I, I think it's a critical that we still climb those mountains, but but we've got to understand from a strictly survival perspective, you've got to make up those calorie deficiencies, the water deficiencies, whenever you're going to be burning a lot of calories and burning a lot of water. So why not? Be lazy so you don't have to make as many
0: up. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming.
6: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com.
3: No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. As it relates to food that you find out there, it's no different than any other skill. If you're going to plan on gathering and foraging for food, like a lot of cultures did for a very long time, and Evan can speak to that intelligently about other cultures for long periods of time then you're going to have to have the knowledge ahead of time you can't just walk into the rockies or walk into the to my neck of the woods and go okay i know all i can eat all those things right there you don't you've got to study with somebody and personally from a plant's perspective uh you you can study with books you can study from uh, educated people online but the best way to do that is with a mentor And then the second side of that is finding proteins from animals and hunting and trapping and stuff of that nature. Um, That that is very difficult to do. So find a, a mentor to help you do that before you need it so that you have that skill. And then at the same time, just know that both of those endeavors, foraging and hunting, are hard. They're very, very hard. And when you're stressed, when you're dehydrated, Uh, When you're two weeks in, you haven't eaten anything, and now you don't have a lot of energy, they're even harder. And so taking food with you is uh, a really important aspect of it. I tell this statistic all the time. Uh, It kind of sobers people up. But Meriwether Lewis wrote in his journal that his men were eating 25 pounds of meat per day and starving to death. And in his journal, he's writing about it going, I don't understand why. And the reason why, we all know, is because of the keto diet. That's what we'll call it. His men were eating um, stored meat in barrels that were salted. So not only were they eating meat, but they were eating lots of salted meat. So that's that's a duo that's bad for somebody that's burning thousands of calories a day, moving boats up and down a river, right? Sacagawea, I'm going to throw a pun in here. You all like puns? Are you okay with puns? Sacagawea, save their bacon. She taught them how to forage because they did not have that knowledge up until when she taught them how to do it. She also taught them how to get game animals and eat bugs because these were two viable pieces of, of uh, nutrition. and she taught them how they could do it without you know going out and killing a buffalo and having to bring the buffalo back to the crew because that expends a lot of calories. And so these are all things that you've got to be, you know, she was prepared for it. She helped them prepare for it. And uh, I think it's worthy of consideration of getting these things done now and not expecting. It's no different than shooting a pistol. You guys, Uh, you're not going to rise to the occasion. You're going to fall to your level of training. I think Shane said that earlier. It's no different with foraging and trapping animals either.
1: Well, without the basic knowledge prior, how do you even go there to go to call back on something you guys brought up also with the differences based on where you are geographically just that alone how do you know
3: what plants to eat i do foraging classes all the time i teach this subject matter regularly yeah i can teach a class right here in this 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 field right here and go down the same general area two miles down the road and walk into another farm and the plants are different there will be some that are the same and if i go to if i go to shane's neck of the woods the plants are going to be different. If I go to Evans Neck of the Woods, it's really going to be different. And so, uh, one of the things I would like to get across on this subject matter is that a lot of people think they're going to run into the woods and they're going to survive forever. They they're just I'm sorry, they're just stupid. I'm getting fired up now. They're just they're just dumb. It ain't it's not going to work because most of the plants that you can eat are herbaceous plants that need a lot of sunlight. And in the middle of a wooded environment, those plants don't typically grow. They grow on woodland and woodland openings and so this is a, a general understanding of how plants grow that it's just critical to being in the outdoors and and people miss it are we talking guns now if you have to
4: we just aside uh real quick footnote on full uh food is food is fuel and from it from kind of like a like i say my background uh it's fuel and it's also uh attitude uh for me uh i know that um if you're in the doldrums or you get into what I call sleep monsters or some of those places where you've been at it for a while, you burn a lot of matches, burn a lot of calories. Uh, there are food, uh, foods that are mood lifters that don't take a whole lot. Uh, but also something that's calorie dense that you can process. And and real quick, I'll touch on this. Uh, my experience is if you're out and active, it's better to fuel as you go in smaller amounts than it is to get behind the curve and then try to catch up because that's when bad things happen to good people. And we had adverse reactions because we've shunted all of our blood away from our digestive tract and it's going to our large muscle groups. And now you've just, um, dumped a whole bunch of, uh, of, of of new resources and new stuff on your body that it, it just, uh, it just really wasn't prepared to, to, to do. So if you can fuel and hydrate at regular intervals your body is where it's your body's just managing resources all the time so when you you can go back to evan's term homeostasis we don't like to be our bodies don't like to be upset Uh, years ago i started really focusing in on fuel and how my body reacts on doing long endurance races and i was eating every half hour and drinking every you know and doing all that stuff and before it was over with i took a a um Iron Man, uh watch and it had a countdown repeat timer and I got it down to where every six minutes it was going off and I was drinking and at least every other rotation I was trying to take in some calories so every six minutes I'm drinking and then I'm trying to take a bite I'm not talking about cramming my face I'm talking about nibbling and and, and if you look for for kind of the general rule of thumb for to to maintain a high aerobic threshold is you need about between 240 and 300 calories an hour that's way harder to do than you think it is and it's especially harder or almost impossible to do if you're 16 hours into a 24-hour race and now you're behind the curve you will not catch up and whatever you eat will wind up coming out one end or the other in, in a less pleasant way so to, to understand how our bodies work and ingest and that stuff along the way, it makes
2: a big difference.
1: I personally have noticed, and this might be kind of a silly comparison, but as a patrol cop in a hot car with no air conditioning since the beginning of summer, okay, that's another story. Uh, constantly doing that, constantly drinking, constantly snacking on something, usually almonds or something like that, really also made, has helped me maintain my energy level. Uh, though due to the heat, my productivity does seem to falter because I'm wearing a vest and all this kind of stuff, but overall comfort levels, just sitting in a damn hot car have increased just because I have constantly hydrating, constantly bringing in calories. It's nice. So now do we talk about guns? Okay. Okay. So here's the scenario. What I want you guys to do is describe where you live, describe in your opinion, what would be your one choice of rifle and one choice of pistol for some form of an outdoors survival scenario? So we're I think all of us are big proponents of our mission is basically dictating what the gear is going to be. So without being able to say exactly what we're going to face or what we're going to do, and we just have to go, I'm going to take this 4570 and this nine millimeter or something like that just to, to just to have a well-rounded uh, uh defensive whatever or even uh, options to to potentially kill animals to eat what would you guys pick up and this have this catered to where you live so if you don't have grizzlies and you don't need some huge caliber and you'd be okay with a five five six or a two two three because the animals are smaller that makes a lot of sense or if you're just going to say 22 that makes sense so craig
3: Wow, I'm probably the least gun guy of the group. Uh, Now that doesn't mean I'm not a gun guy, but I just don't think I'm as much a gun guy as these other gentlemen are. So they'll have more to add here. But um, I got to carry what I typically carry for self-defense all the time, no matter where I'm going. Which is a nine millimeter. Uh, That's what I carry. I carry a Glock 19. That's the the firearm that I have found that I can reliably shoot accurately under stress. I've shot a lot of different sidearms and for some reason that, that firearm works for me and it works well for me. So I like having it because I have confidence with it, not cockiness confidence. In my neck of the woods, um, the upper Cumberland Plateau, Appalachian Mountains, uh, open fields, what have you, up Kentucky, inner bluegrass, there's seven physiographic regions here, but uh, it's gonna be a 22 rifle. Uh, it's gonna be one that I can shoot accurately. Um, Because I, the animals, I'm not really, I don't have the animals that are predators to me here. I don't have to worry about those things. And so from a survival perspective, small game animals are the things that I would primarily be going for in a survival situation. And I can take larger game down with a 22 as well, if I can shoot it accurately. And um, how do I say this? there's some knowledge that I have that proves that that can be done. (laughs) I'll say it that way. And so, uh, but you've got to be good with it. But again, from a hunting perspective, which I think goes back to some of the stuff we've been talking about, uh, even though Kentuckians are known for long rifle shooting and long distance shooting, and there's a lot of pride of that here in Kentucky, I I feel differently than most Kentuckians when it comes to that. I want to be up in your grill when I'm in the woods I, I want to kill that deer five yards from me I don't want to kill it 500 yards that's a totally different animal than what that Evan has to deal with in the Rockies. he doesn't have that opportunity most of the time so for me uh, I want to be close and so I can do that with a 22 rifle even on a deer um, but again I think from a survival perspective if I shoot a deer and we're not eating at all, or I don't have the means to process it all, then that's a wasted animal. And I'm, I'm a woods mojo, what I call woods mojo kind of guy. I take care of the woods, so the woods take care of me. I wanna be a good steward, even if in a survival situation when and where I can. So I think the better solution is to go for small game from, from a, we're just talking strictly survival wilderness. We're not talking about self-defense. There's other tools, there's other rifles I would carry for that purpose. But uh, that's what I'm talking about, a wilderness survival situation.
1: Awesome. That's exactly what I was asking for. Shane.
3: Uh, it's going to be real familiar.
4: Um, 19 X or, or maybe even a, a 34, uh, I might skip over the 17 and go to a Glock 19. I shot a lot of, uh, IDPA and some three gun stuff and, and GSSF stuff. So I'm, I'm familiar with the platform. I got all the support systems, the mags, the springs, all of the spare parts. It's just what I'm familiar with. Um, a Ruger suppressed 7722. Uh, I most everything I shoot suppressed when it comes to rifle calibers. Um, I like the suppressed option. Uh, this little, it's a medium contour barrel, laminated stock that I am wickedly accurate with. That um, I like the offer. Uh, I like what a suppressor offers in the way of signature in the woods and a lot of other places. But what we didn't, what we didn't clarify in your question. We said survival scenario. What we didn't what we didn't get was a temperature of of what the culture was and what caused that. Uh, but I can carry a boatload of ammo and and and, and not really feel it. Uh, I have a quiet uh, signature. Uh, it's not cumbersome to carry. Uh, it works all the time. Bolt action is going to be less to go wrong with it. Um, and if I'm suppressed, hopefully I can be able to get in and out of places quieter without being noticed. And, and, uh, I ain't going looking for a fight. I'm going to keep to myself and, and hopefully everybody else does the same.
5: Evan. I'm not even sure where to go with this, honestly. Um, so survival, as Shane just said, I was about to throw, throw that same curveball, um, you know, pure wilderness with no other people, is hard to find. It's hard to find these days. And so when I'm in the back country, it, you know, and here's the other thing, people are scared of bears. I just, I haven't seen it, man. It's just not a thing. Like they don't want to have anything to do with me. Uh, there's a couple that i pushed at a little harder than I should. And they let me know I was pushing too hard and I had to back off. Um, So I'm not really super concerned about protecting myself from bears. And I know it's a hot topic. And, you know, so I was in Alaska, I don't know, three, four years ago. And I thought, well, maybe grizzlies are different because everybody says grizzlies are different. And the one grizzly saw when I was out on the trail did exactly what a black bear would do, which is he waited until I passed the willow thicket that he was hiding in. And then he tried to sneak away behind me. And this was a four hundred pound bear, you know, so i'm I'm scared of moose, like moose really scare me they are they're mean, they're territorial um I've had moose like lay their ears back and like with no provocation whatsoever, so you know as sexy as bears are as a predator, it's really moose I'm concerned about in the backcountry. um I, I don't know that's a whole lot of talking so I guess what I'll what I'll say is um, my daily carry and this is' I'm, I'm with Craig on this it's true of knives it's true of pistols I carry 40 uh, 40 Smith and Wesson uh, because it is um, has enough extra pop um, the 200 grain hard casts that I carry when I'm up north out of a five inch barrel. I'm not worried about shooting a big animal with that. I'm not worried about shooting a moose around here with it. Um, I carry that in the M and P platform because I was a 1911 guy for years. And so nothing but that grip angle ever points right for me. I'd have to, I don't shoot enough that I could retrain myself to a Glock grip grip angle. I'm just realistic about that. Um, and the, uh, M and P, um, recoils less in 40 than Glock does by a pretty significant amount. Um, Just the felt recoil is different. I don't know why, but it's much more shootable. So um, whether I'm in the back country or the front country, the 40 splits the difference for me. And yeah, I've got a 10 and, you know, when I go up North, maybe I carry a 10, but the 40 bats both directions Uh, as far as a long arm. It's, you know, for straight foraging, the suppressed 22 i've got a super accurate tax and the you know take down backpacker stock that's a really really nice little foraging rifle whether it's grouse or uh you know craig what craig didn't what craig was alluding to is that there are specific laws as to the caliber that you're allowed to use to take down a given animal as as long as you can get through to the brain with a um with a 22 caliber that's going to work out just fine um but the one thing about that Craig I know that in your area distances are are closer they're shorter out here your shot opportunity whether or not you like it might be a couple hundred yards and if you really have to put meat down that couple hundred yard shot may be the one that you have to take um so I I think what I'm going to end up doing um Usually if I carry a rifle in the back country, which is rare, it's going to be a 300 blackout and the ARs are just lighter and handier than anything else. Uh, particularly, you know, if it's a second pistol, um, you understand what I'm saying there. Um, so I, I think I just have to say it's going to be 300 blackout, uh, in a pistol. So I'm carrying two pistols. Okay. Now we're going to drive, we're going to,
1: get some traffic from those weird knife people. What is your choice of knife? What kind of blade? What kind of, what's, what's it called? The uh, grind. Yes. Thank you. The grind length, all that kind of stuff. Now I know Shane might have some input on this, but we're going to go back to
3: Craig again. No, no. Shane's talking first on this one. He's the man. Craig designed a knife. You know this, right? No. Hey, I'm backing off. I'm letting Shane talk on this one. He's got more knowledge on knives than I do. I'm a minimalist on almost everything. (laughs) Knife people are
1: so strange. They they, they make gun people look perfectly normal.
2: You're not lying. We're all weird. Uh,
4: So once again, for most people, this is what they're going to view as a survival knife really big right so I'm, I'm a marketing director for a company that's about to do a really good job of not selling you a knife probably um but what if what if that's all i have that's a that's a sack swiss army knife um farmer x is one of my favorite knives if that's all i have that's my bushcraft knife that's my survival knife uh I would probably do a better job of making it a force multiplier by hitting somebody in the skull with it. Um, uh, So my most carried knife, um, we can talk all day long about grinds and everything else. And this is where I will tell you, I'm I'm proud to to be a part of a company that departs from the marketing hype and other stuff. Steels, it's all hype. Uh, or the vast majority of hype is knives or tools. Uh, My most carried knife is this is one of our CR 2.5s that I I had a friend of mine put some custom olive wood handles on. If you look at the blade, you're seeing two and a half inches of cutting surface. All right. 99.9% of my task, I only need about that much of that blade uh if you are a a tactician with knives or you want to say you're a knife fighter it's we've always said knives are made to be felt not seen um i'm not just going two and a half inches in i'm going two and a half inches in plus all the butt i can put behind it to push it
7: through um we can talk knife grinds and steel okay round two name something that's not boring
2: laundry
4: oh a book club
6: Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life.
7: No purchase necessary. VGW. Root. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions
4: 18+. My core value and core principle to knives is very synonymous with what you have with guns and the calibers and everything else learn to get the most efficiency out of whatever tool you're using, whether it be a firearm, whether it be a knife. I don't care about grind. I don't care about steel. If you're using a really crappy gas station knife, and that's the only knife you have in a survival situation, then you need to know the limitations of that knife. You need to know how to use that knife. And then you need to know, uh, how to protect that knife as a resource. If you're using a really cool, beautiful knife made by LT Wright that, that uh, Craig designed, uh, the more you use that knife, the more you use its limitations, and the more you know what you can get away with. And, and so I think, once again, um, I want to be real cautious and, and, and caution people. Uh, I used to love the saying, beware of the guy with one, with one gun. You know, he knows how to use it. All right. So um, we get kind of enamored with stuff and with we have to have a bushcraft nap. We have to have a survival knife. We have to have a pocket. I mean, like, blah, 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 blah. It's all bullshit. None of it's true. It's about the skill. It's about learning to get the most out of whatever it is you have with you and going from there. Now, we can talk SE knives. I got LT Wright knives. I got Kahuta knives. I'm a knife guy. I've been indoctrinated into gun and knife culture my entire life, so I'm as bad as anybody. But, but we are more about
2: using the tool to its full potential, and that only comes from dirt time. Craig, you're up, buddy. Yeah. Well, I,
3: I definitely don't want to put words in Evan's mouth, but I, I think if you look at Evan sells a knife that I think is pretty close to him and his design. I sell a knife that I designed; uh, it's pretty close to me. They are entirely different knives, but here's what is similar: they're both born out of our experiences. And I've heard Evan speak about time with his father, and this knife spent a lot of he spent a lot of time using a knife like this with his dad. That's the knife that I designed because I had literally decades of time utilizing a knife of that style. The things that I did with it were that are different than others is period correct reenacting. So I had a, a long knife and, and it's 12 inches long, the one that I designed because it does some things. Uh, specifically, it can be used as a draw knife. It has a lot of edge to do a lot of different things that an edge would be need, need to be used for. And, and the thought being is that those guys, what I call the long knives and the knife that I designed, is called the shamanise. Uh, that's a shiny word that means long knife. Those guys had long knives because of this. And, and a friend of mine just made me aware of this the other day. And after he told me this, I thought, oh my gosh, that makes perfect sense. When firearms were one shot, black powder, the knives were long. And as we started advancing through history and we've got to repeating firearms, the knives got shorter. Because those knives back then were a tool that were a self-defense tool because your typical frontiersman, for example, has got a flintlock or a cap lock, shoots once, and then if somebody's still coming or another dude is still coming, then you've got to use the blade and as much distance as you can put between them and you. And you can utilize the same tool to build that shelter and gut out that deer and fillet the fish. If that knife will do all that, then you're, you're, you're much better off. So that's where I was growing up as a kid, utilizing knives like that, that could flay a fish. You could utilize it for self-defense. You could gut a deer with it. You could take it literally and not only just gut the deer in the field, but you could process it and put it in the freezer. That's the knife that I utilize. And so uh, I've, I've been really criticized at times because my knife is long and very thin. That's just a glorified kitchen knife, okay? It didn't hurt my feelings that you don't like it. I will kill a deer and take it from the field and put it in the freezer, and then use that same knife to cut up a deer steak at the around around the campfire. Uh, so that's that's my, that's my take on it. Um, though again, that was born out of you know this style of knife right here, long knife. This is hammer forge style, and this is this is the style of knife that I carried when I was a kid right? A real long blade, real simplistic belt holder. You stick it in the belt and belt and the, the pressure of the belt's what held it in. And that's it. It doesn't even have a belt loop on it. It's just held in place. The other thing that goes along with it is some sort of what was carried by those guys, like a neck knife. And so this was a neck knife. They would also carry these knives, these smaller blades on a pouch on their pouch shoulder, whether it's Possible's back or a rifleman's bag and so that's kind of how I grew up, having a little knife and having a big knife. And so for me, I have a big knife that I use for a lot of stuff. But the knife that I use the most is really not a lot of different than what Shane carries. And that is, uh, I'm either carrying a folder, and 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 most recently I've been, I haven't been doing this long, but only for, only for about four or five years, I've been doing a considerable amount of really solid knife fighting. And so now I carry a very short uh, fixed blade that I carry with me every day. And so that does a lot of things. It gets sharpened a lot because it does a lot of things, but it's also there for me to, you know, utilize if I need to for self-defense as well.
1: So just looking at that, so I'm on your site right now on the other screen and man, I, I have questions that I think we might just need an episode about knives. Because I'm seeing it says Sabre, uh, Sabre saber grind. And now I'm wondering, okay, so what's the difference between that and a Scandi? But we'll save that for another episode. You
3: know, hey, in, in all seriousness, um, I don't think it matters. <laughs> I mean, no. I have a Sabre because yeah. the guys that that built that knife suggested that's what I use. And these are guys that make knives every day. And I was like, okay, I don't really care as long as the, the 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 bottom side of it is sharp and the pointy side of it is pointy. If it does those two things, I'm really okay with it. I don't care if it's a kitchen knife or it's the knife that LT Wright built for us because that's a beautiful thing. It's a it's a work of art, and it gets used a lot. But uh, I, I think the the minutiae is one of those things that people just people that don't go into the woods every day that are sitting around on forums and on Facebook and all that bullshit. Oh, sorry. They're out there. They just love to debate that kind of stuff. Cause they're, they're doing that online while I'm in the woods using my knife. And that's just how I feel about it.
1: And Absolutely. So that's, that's Absolutely. Yeah. So for me, I, I, I'm just interested in learning. Okay. So what's the advantages of this
5: and how does this fit in the grand scheme of things? And it's just interesting. Evan, that's I'm, That certainly could be a whole episode. Um, I I think what I'd say about grinds is if a blade is too thick or the grind is too abrupt from the edge all the way to the spine, it's going to drag in the cut when you're trying to work through meat. So if the blade is thin enough, the grind doesn't matter. If the blade develops quite a bit of thickness towards the spine, you're going to want a grind that goes all the way up to the spine so that it doesn't drag in the cut. That's on meat. Um, but boy, that that could be a whole other episode, and I would probably opt out of that because I just don't care that much. I know what I like, and that's the end of the story. Uh, so, as far as uh, knife that I carry, um, yeah, so I've, uh, I guess, 91 was the first year that I studied Jeet Kune Do uh, in a Santo lineage. Jeet Kundo, which includes the Kali, the knife fighting, the Filipino knife fighting. So I've been carrying a knife since then um, w- with the idea of using it as a weapon. And in those days, it was the Emerson when Emerson was made by Benchmade. I have one of those. That was my first serious fighting knife, uh, if you will. Um, so i I've been trying to integrate systems. Um it, it, you know, just like my pistol, I want my knife to be my knife to be my knife. And uh, in the backcountry, what I, in the backcountry I carry my daily carry knife, which actually is not, you know, the knife that uh, I design. You know, this this thing here, my brother and I design. Uh, it's a great knife. It's a great knife in the backcountry. Um, but I've transitioned to carrying my knife in my left pocket. That's my offside. Um, for reasons that I think we all understand. Pistol on the right and knife on the left. Um, And a straight blade, in fact, in my left pocket. And if you're going to carry a straight blade in your pocket, it has to be under a certain size and under a certain weight to be practical. Unfortunately, the knife that I'd like to carry in the backcountry is too big for that. So what I've been carrying, I don't know, for quite a while now, this is a little, uh, uh, I think it's called the Mini Sendero by... Who makes this it was designed by jerry fisk and it's made by white river it's really light it's really thin it's about seven and a quarter overall um i
3: with lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere
5: dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom
7: sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time
6: no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case, I pronounce you lucky.
7: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
5: Batoning wood with it, which is one of my backcountry uses. It's a little short for batoning, but I can get batoning done. Uh, it's a nice thin blade, so it's great for processing any kind of meat or anything. Um, it doesn't look like a dagger, uh, but it's fantastic in the reverse grip. Uh, because of the way that the, the handle is and it's great to pull out of my pocket for that reason as well so i'd love to carry a better backcountry knife in the backcountry but this is the one i've always got it's always in the same place and it works just fine in the backcountry
3: good stuff
1: so i think we have now reached that point where it's time for final thoughts and plugs and we'll start with greg
3: Final thoughts, I think, for everybody is, is number one, thank you for being here and listening to us speak. Uh, if I could uh, humbly submit this summarization from all of us, it's that you need to do you as best as you possibly can. I hope you picked up something from each of us as we were talking that you go, man, I really like that. And there might have been something you thought, man, I don't care for that. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. You need to do you. Um, one of my Martial arts teachers years ago says, go to every teacher you can possibly train with and steal everything you can to make it your own. And I think that's true with, uh, with outdoor skills, sur- survival skills. Uh, I don't want to speak because I'm not an instructor of tactical shooting skills and stuff of that nature. But just as long as you become more and more proficient, you grow every day, the better you're going to be. Uh, I like to tell our folks that we get to work with and, and are humbled to work with, I give you permission. And I'm telling everybody that's listening, I'm giving you permission to spend more time outside. If you need a doctor's script, I'll fill that out and send it to you so you can turn into work or your spouse or whatever so you can spend more time outside. Um, the more time you spend outside doing stuff, the better off you're going to be in, in wilderness survival skills, which seems to be the the theme for us here um plugs NatureReliance.org is my website that's NatureReliance.org. Uh, again i've written five books and working on six and seven now you can see some of those there on amazon as well all our classes are there at the website all our social media we're on everything just like most people are and uh, you can find all those connections if you're on there then please please subscribe and follow us and all that kind of good stuff and our goal is always to get people outside safely so uh Shoot me an email if I ever have any questions. If you ever have any questions, I can help you with. And, Matt, I want to thank you so much for uh, having us on and these other guys. Thank you so much. It's, it's great to be with you guys. We always, uh, I always learn when I'm around you guys, and I appreciate you very much.
1: You know, I really think this is probably going to be called Myths and Legends of Outdoor Survival 1, because I think there will probably be a sequel, if not more than that.
2: Shane? Well, like everybody else, man, I, I just, I'm grateful for being here. I can't believe anybody really wants to listen to what we have to say, but,
4: uh, but we do appreciate that, um, especially to Craig and Evan. Uh, we have a longstanding relationship, and uh, I just really appreciate the body of knowledge and experience that those guys represent in their respective fields, but also where we get that crossover. Um, SE9s, E-S-E-E. K-N-I-V-E-S.com, uh, Reynolds We've also started our own podcast. It's available on most uh directories called the SE Rat Pack Podcast. We have, I think, 14 listeners on a regular basis. And uh we'd like to add you as a 15th. Um uh, if I if I had to, I guess, uh send out a, a parting salvo or a parting shot here, I, I would I would really encourage your listeners to a test their theory like like get like it's time to do a press check on our skills you know like let's take a real hard look at where we're at and let's do a really honest assessment and then also to challenge yourself and potentially if you have an over-reliance on one piece of gear remove it and put it with something else at times and start to learn something a little different Um, uh, we have our everyday carries and, and I know what I carry and I'm not going to be swapping out a bunch of guns. I'm not that guy. I, I, I if it ain't broke, I ain't going to fix it. But with other stuff, um, I will often choose to handicap myself and take a piece of gear that I've become over reliant on and strip it away and put something else in its place or do without for something. I spend a lot of time. I'm very fortunate that I spent a lot of time in the field. And so you know I, I might take a four inch knife well the next time i'm going to take my just my swiss army knife and a pocket saw or just a small and like and just deal with it like force myself to improvise so that's something that i know that that craig and evan both do and we get out and we and we check our stuff and we and we kind of check our dipstick is what i like to say to get out and and to do those things Thanks again to you, Matt. Great, great to meet you and to your audience. Uh, we appreciate the opportunity to just come on and have this discussion.
5: Thanks. Evan. Well, Matt, thanks for reaching out to me. I'm not, honestly not sure where that came from, but I appreciate it. And uh, Craig and Shane, thanks for coming on and making me look good. Cause I know guys who know what's going on. I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, truly I, I want to spend more time with you guys uh, as, as time goes on. Um, oh, the company Hill people gear uh, we make backpacks and, and you know, some other load carriage equipment. It's, it's, it's uh it's good stuff. The quality's good and mountain and, Serape. And, Right. Yeah. We have some garments and stuff like that. Yeah. So uh, yeah, we're online and we also have a shop in downtown grand junction. Um, So, you know, Designing and selling gear for a living is fun. Uh, all the field time that goes along with it is fun. But we've always had a an unspoken mission at Hill People Gear, and that's just to get people outdoors. I don't care whether you use my backpack or not. I really just don't care. What I want you to do is go out there uh, because the world truly is going to be a better place with people spending more time outdoors. And uh, that's, you know, if I could leave with anything, you know, get inspired like our Instagram feed cracks me up because people love it when we add a gun to a picture and I hate it. Like I'll post a nice scenic picture and I'll get a hundred likes and then something stupid with a guy with a gun. It's got like a thousand likes and I'm just like drives me flipping nuts. Um, But I have this discipline around trying to inspire people to get outdoors with the IG feed and uh, you're going to see animals, you're going to see landscapes and uh, hopefully that motivates someone to get out there even if all they have is a little state park next to their city, world's going to be a better place with you getting out there. You're going to be a better human if you get out there. So please do that. And Chad Mercer told me to tell you hi, and he had a whole wall of text just talking you you. I appreciate that, Chad.
1: So I'm going to repeat it. I already said it before. I'm going to say it again. Support those sources that you have found to be beneficial. If you like what these guys have had to say, find them. Find them on the internets, find them on Instagram, on YouTube, on Facebook, all the social medias, uh, subscribe, like share, because all that really helps those, you know, that whole stupid algorithm thing that doesn't work in favor of the really, really good stuff that unfortunately may not be as popular as it should. Same for everything primary and secondary. Uh, you've been listening now for, we're almost going on three hours. You probably need to be, you probably need to like this. Um, big thanks to our sponsors. Big thanks to Big Tech's ordinance. Filster, Primary Arms, Walther. Lastly, big, huge thank you to our Patreon subscribers. You Patreon subscribers also beware. We have our video shoot coming up September 3rd, 4th, and 5th. You are invited to come and join us. Ammo's on me. I need people to press triggers because I'm not going to do it all myself and I want to break some guns. So got a bunch, bunch of ammo. Got some guns. We got some targets. We have some cameras. Let's see what we could do together. Um, hit me up if you have questions, because we're, we're putting this, this big thing together. It's going to be awesome. Big thanks to the panel. Uh, awesome discussion. I really am thinking that we'll probably need to figure out with the next episode, because I think this went really, really smoothly. I enjoyed it. Um, what else do I have? So right now I have a bit of a backlog. This will be the third episode that I have that need to be needs to be edited and released. Uh, next one is a dis- next one to be released will be a discussion with Patreon subscribers. And essentially, there are a couple of us and we're talking about where we've been, where we're at, and where we're going with training, and just kind of a, a, a kind of a not a test, but it's kind of showing us where our where our uh, peers are at and how we can possibly join them. It's that's yeah, a good discussion. I enjoy it. Uh, after that, then we talk about how optimal is not universal talking about how not everyone has the exact same mission and not everyone needs to be carrying the exact same thing because we're not, we're all doing things differently. I'm six, two fifty. I can get away with things that others can't because I'm awesome. So I think that's pretty much it. Um, yeah. I think I'm going to call a night, maybe edit some things. You can find us at primaryandsecondary.com. We have a forum, primaryandsecondary.com forum. We have 736 different Facebook groups. Uh, we are on YouTube, Instagram. What else? iTunes, all the uh, podcast places. If you want to support us, you can go to patreon.com primaryandsecondary. Help pay some bills. It's appreciated. That's all. I'll talk to you guys later.